in Serial Killer Country. My name is Brittany Ransom. And my name is Brian Joyner. And this is When Killers Get Caught, a podcast devoted to deep dives into killers we love to learn about. Every week, Brian and I discuss two true crime stories that resonated with us. And then I will lead you down the darker path of learning about who a killer was, how they grew up, how they killed, and most importantly, how they got caught. Then Brian slows things down for us and gives us a walk through the creepier side of life and to the discussion of the paranormal. And... This week in true crime, I'm actually going to talk about something that I talked about on TikTok this week because um, it's been deeply upsetting for me. I don't know, Brian, if you have heard of a young girl named Riley Whithall from Colorado Springs, Colorado. If not. Um, Riley was killed on June 11th, and it is believed that it was by her co-worker. And like young women being murdered by men, not really all that groundbreaking. But his was most interesting in the way that I opened my my TikTok was Riley Woodhall did everything that they tell us we're supposed to. And she still died. Uh, it started in 2021 when she started working and she was 16 and uh, an older man at her job. He was 27 at the time. Named Jonathan. Let me double check his last. Joshua Taylor Johnson. Get that whole name in there. Um he started making inappropriate comments towards her sexual advances um, and Riley reported him. And this happened multiple times and her manager was like, I'll talk to him. And they did talk to him, but it didn't stop anything. So ultimately, the way that Riley figured out how to deal with this was that she asked for a new shift. And it worked out because she was still in school so they could work with her different shift, you know? Right, right. Um, until most recently, uh, you know, school lets out and Riley wants more hours towards the end of the year. And her boss is just like, listen, I can give you more hours, but that means you're going to have to be in the store sometimes with Joshua. So when Riley went back into the store at springtime, Joshua started up his BS again with bothering her. And um, since obviously telling her superiors didn't fix anything, uh, Riley decided to, she caught her, she convinced her boyfriend to get a job at the Walgreens too. So then it still didn't stop. Apparently Joshua became jealous seeing uh, her boyfriend in the store and all of this culminates on june 11th 2022 where uh joshua johnson goes into the break room sometime before riley's break uh, which of course he knew because oh, what a weirdo and he stacked up boxes in the break room so that it covered the security cameras and then he put paper over the break room windows and he also put up signs so that customers were dissuaded from coming back, saying that the bathrooms were out of order. And um, all we really have in terms of knowing exactly what happened was that there was a, like a 15-year-old girl in the wall, uh, Walgreens and she heard a scream and she got scared and she left. Her Personally, what I think happened is more than likely Joshua tried to rape her. And we can tell from his like picture. You can look him up. Um, 
He's no, he's cut up in the face. He had there's cuts on his hands, his arms. She wasn't having that happen, and it turned from probably an assault to a murder. But ultimately, he did choke her. It. They said that there was blood all over the break room, walls, floor, ceiling. Like it was horrifically violent. Uh, and then this he makes me so angry. Um, because. Let's see. So they took him in. Like, so the police. Uh, okay, I'll go back. Sorry, I'm getting, I'm already getting heated. Um, <laughs> so, um, people on TikTok have told me that this particular Walgreens is a ghost. Like, there's barely ever any staff there. So I'm thinking when she asked, like, there probably were like three or four staff tops. So she doesn't come back from her break, and her boss her manager goes and checks the surveillance cameras and he sees the stacking off of the boxes and stuff and then he goes to the break room but it's 90 minutes after her break uh and of course he finds her he calls the police they come speeding in immediately joshua is a person of interest but he's not on site anymore even though he should be working there they find him a hundred miles away the next day so he's obviously running away. Um, they take him back in. The police show him like they're like people like there's video evidence of you blocking the cameras. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And then he says that um, he had a crush on Riley at some point, but he was over her now. OK, is that why you excessively and then like made these comments to her? Well, he had made um. He had take he had gone home and taken off his bloody clothes. He said he fell in the blood that was already in the break room. That's why he went home. Mm, that makes sense. Right, it doesn't make any sense. And so he's he's currently he's already been indicted for first degree murder. Um and his next hearing isn't until August 26th, I believe. He waived the right to a speedy trial more than likely because they need more time to create a defense for this asshole. Um, he's currently being held without bond in El Paso County Jail. Uh, just it, the, the reason why I wanted to bring this up is because we always we're, we're constantly telling young women, you know, oh, you got to do this. You got to do that. I mean, I even had people on my TikTok talking about, well, if she had had a gun, I'm like, there's no job in the world. There's no job in America no, that no. lets you bring a gun or anything. In fact, almost every single job I've had has a clause that says if you have a weapon at work we can fire you so that is yeah, not uh, a response n- no not at all and even if open she, carry if she's not states. working security like security no i mean yeah. barely barely have right guns, unless like, you're an armed security guard which is usually for like banks not for like a walgreens that's a bullshit excuse Side note, though, wrote that, I, so, mm. yeah well i did learn something when i lived in philly um so because uh, like beer distributors in places are so like locked down in Pe- in Pennsylvania. The spot mm-hmm. where people are robbing is grocery stores before the end of the night. Because one night I went grocery shopping late at night and I'm like, what are all these dudes doing here? And I actually like asked the guy, I was like, you guys aren't normally in the store. And he's just like, we are at night. He was like, usually before closing because that's when they empty all the tills. And yes, go yes. lock it up. And the the time to rob them is right then. And I'm like, dang. So it's not robbing liquor stores anymore. 
People are robbing <laughs> grocery stores, which is pretty yeah. scary. But yeah, I'm like, I'm like, she reported him multiple times over the year, and I can't help but think that like. In the face of like repealing Roe v. Wade, we're just going to have more stories like this because obviously this Joshua Taylor Johnson is one of those people who, what's the word? He's probably an incel. I can't can't see somebody really wanting to spend any time with him. And some of those people are very violent and they blame women not liking them on women, which is why they want to, they spend hours online talking about killing women, you know, when the real issue is if you make yourself a better person, more people will want to be with you or spend time with you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But, and it's, it's so messed up. Cause I'm like, when I was 16, my first job, an older guy did the same thing to me. Actually, it went to the point where he got my number from one of the other younger female counselors and he got where I lived. He didn't get my exact house number, but he knew what street. And so he would just drive by. And I never said anything to anybody. He even cornered me one time when we were at work and was like, I'm going to bleep you by the end of the summer. Wow. And he was like in his 30s and I was 16. And it was really creepy. And I think about the now in hindsight as an adult woman about how many situations I had like that. Um, and it's not gotten any better. Somebody on TikTok tried to be like, well, only one out of like 100,000 women get murdered by men every year. And I'm like, is it one too many? Yes. One is way too many. <laughs> that if people oh, can't. Like, I'm like, why do we have to? And that was not real show. Why do women have to? Uh, change our schedules, move, like, like change do all this our extra jobs. Shit. Like while while these men are just like they still have their jobs. It's like he should have been fired. Thank so you. Long even ago. even like even this though he was harassing his coworker. She was a child. Yeah, I'm like very clearly pedophilic behavior, and we're just gonna let this guy stay here. Like there aren't kids and young women who come into Walgreens all the time. Y'all not worried okay. about him doing something to one of the stat like customers, <laughs> right? Okay, okay, okay. story. Okay, mm-hmm. so back at the blood bank, mm-hmm. um, before like a few months before I left, there's this guy there. His name I don't remember. I'll say uh, his don't name. say his it. John. Uh, it, it's <laughs> a basic ass. It's a basic ass name. His name's John. Okay, um. And like his first couple of weeks, he he was okay. Then he started talking to some of the female employees, right? And like like you said about this guy, was his name Josh or whatever the hell? Yeah. Um, he he was, he was basically like an incel. Um, and he he like made we some throw that term to, around a lot, but like look in mm, person, no, you know mm, exactly who we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But no, like he made some comments to some of the female employees, um, which made them very, very uncomfortable. He was reported to our job, which I, I I'll give props to the job. Um, they handled this very swiftly. Um, uh, he made comments to them, and then he was like, not suspended, but he was like, like, hey, don't come around anybody. You're supposed to you don't come in around these times. Like, don't come in any like any earlier than you're supposed to at, at work. And he's like, okay, okay, okay. He does it. Again, not just to the, our female employees, but you know how we deliver to hospitals and shit like mm-hmm. that. Um, he would do it to some of the staff there too, and then you know, um, 
you do it to staff at hospitals, they report that shit back to us. And that just like, that's just a whole other problem. So as soon as like we start hearing about that, he was, um, my boss was like, okay, you know what? You gotta get out of here. Cause we're, we're not dealing with this. He was fired within his first month of working there. And I was just like, yes, thank you. <laughs> you know what also happens too? Like I've had friends talk to me about how they've had to what's the word hide from people who walk in like well like customers who walk in looking for young girls oh yes when i was working at the summer camp last year some of the um younger like in college staff talked to me about that and i was like that's so ridiculous yeah, and like, and some customers do that too. Like at, at restaurants, like regular customers. Yeah, like they come and looking for people. Oh, is so and so here? And you've yep. got like a, a fit, like a sixteen-year-old girl hiding in the back. Yeah, like don't let them know I'm here. I'm not going out there. You handle him. And I mean, it's there just, have been situations mm. where restaurant customers end up killing waitresses because they become obsessed with them. And I'm like, we got to come up with something we can do about this because. The the okay the police won't deal with things like stalking or stuff like this because there's been no like physical attack and of course in this situation his first attack was extreme violence so like yeah, there's was, no space yeah. to protect this young girl I'm like we got to do something here with with repeated behavior because the thing is there could be a man who walks by my house every day and stops on the sidewalk and and looks up in my windows. He could do it every single day, and the police won't. We can't do anything about it. They're like, he hasn't done anything. He's on a public sidewalk. He hasn't threatened you. I'm like, that is threatening. That, yeah, that's very threatening. Walking by me at work, Ugh. like walking by Riley at work and making comments about her body or stuff like that. That was the threat. We need to act when there is the threat. But I've already taken up like ten minutes. Sorry, y'all. <laughs> but like, this really <laughs> no, upset okay. me, and like. Honestly, like when I was recording the video, like I only got one good take where I didn't either start like yelling at Walgreens or crying because like this is it happens to so many, like so many of us this has happened to and nothing has changed. It hasn't gotten better in decades. Yeah. It's But what's your story today, Brian? My story Pills in comparison to the words of yours. Um, hold on, I just had it and it disappeared. Hold on a sec. Oh, gosh. Um, okay, okay. It's it's a goofy story. It's uh, from, from um, our favorite state. Pennsylvania? No, our, our second favorite state. Florida. Oh. Uh, a 44-year-old Florida woman brings her infant child infant grandchild along with a stash of cocaine and heroin to a recent prison visit um that <laughs> that reminds me of a uh, uh what's that show with zendaya zendaya yeah it's the hbo show with the girls who were all in high school and zendaya's a heroin addict in that show Oh, I know what you're talking about. But um, there's a character in that show um, who, um, he's like an older guy in his early teens and he talks like he's high all the time. He sells drugs and there's a younger kid who lives with him and you find out 
spoilers in a, a season that he's been living with that family for years and the grandma is the drug kingpin and she was just bringing <laughs> him on all the drug deals and so that's why he's like 12 and he's like a drug dealer and has like never been to school because she didn't even have him legally literally somebody abandoned him and she's like i guess you live with us now um but i was like that reminds me of that story that like the grandma doing taking her kids on drug deals when they were little <laughs> uh it's always the grandmas you can't trust those grandmas um, florida grandmas <laughs> florida grandmas so yeah the guards i guess the of course they do a search before they come in right yeah visitors they're in. pretty intense when you go to a like the only thing you could yeah. do is like i don't know like have it in a cavity that would be the only way and that's super mm-hmm. dangerous because if it pops you're gonna die yeah, um, so this happened on a Sunday. Okay, Lord's Day. Yeah. <laughs> the, 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 the guards, uh, they found nearly 100 grams of drugs during this, this search on her. Um, and they made a Facebook post about it, of course, because that's the thing that cops do now. Um, so she was arrested, shared the the Soto County um, in the Soto County Sheriff's Department. Uh, they arrested her um, and they did a, you know, they had a canine go to her car. They did a, what's it called? A free air sniff. Um, and they found more drugs. They found 687 grams of cocaine and heroin in her car, <laughs> along with the, uh, the you know the baby's car seat that was of course she that's a good thing she had a baby in the car seat which you know is smart keep that baby um, in the car seat, um, but the grandchild mm-hmm. unfortunately was turned well I don't, I don't know if it, if it's unfortunate or not but the the grandchild was turned over to the Florida Department of Children and Families so. She, uh, the, the grandmother is being charged with trafficking in heroin and cocaine. Uh, and she, it was, was an introduction of contraband into a correctional facility, child abuse, neglect, and possession of drug paraphernalia. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure who she was going, it doesn't say who she was going to visit. I'm assuming maybe either the, the baby's father or her husband or maybe baby's mother i don't know i don't know what they would well i know what they would need drugs and for you know in jail for but you, you know what i mean um it doesn't say who she was trying to visit um but yeah just don't don't take your kid don't take kids to drug deals this is just like did i talk about it last week or a week before when the guy got drugs in his and his food at the fast food that restaurant. was last week was it last week yeah yeah <laughs> it was terrible doing that? drug deals at work yeah did the grandma tell like why she had all that on her uh-uh she's being uh-uh. quiet probably smart yeah <laughs> smart probably smart it wasn't smart i mean it's smart for her to keep her mouth shut now <laughs> yeah, yeah, just that's true. That's true. But yeah, that's what I got. All right.
So I told you the other day, Brian, when we were talking that I was going to talk about uh, a child that killed, but I actually changed my mind. Um, what I was thinking about actually was a couple weeks ago, I talked about all the mass shootings in America and I mentioned one of the shootings that was a big deal in America. And I ended up wanting to look more into that. That is the uh, shooting at in Austin at the University of Austin, Texas. And I decided to look more into that one because like, uh, like I remember Columbine, I remember Virginia Tech, but I wasn't old enough to remember this one. And it did have a pretty, it, it changed laws actually um, after it happened. But to the people in the 60s, this, this is a shooting that meant a lot to them. Uh, the perpetrator here is Charles Whitman Jr. Uh, like I said, they ended up changing laws. There were a lot of things they looked into after this. Uh, I also told you off off uh, camera that strangely enough, while I was portraying his story, I found myself sympathetic in some ways, and that right. usually doesn't happen. Yes, yes, yes. So, like I said, this is one. Of the, this is one of those cases where I go, "Hmm, do I have some sympathy? Should I not?" I don't know. When I'm done, everybody can tell me. I'll leave a, a poll. <laughs> I'll leave a poll on uh, Spotify. Now, before we start talking about Charles Whitman Jr., we have to talk about Charles Adolphus Whitman Sr., a man who started his life as an orphan and is pretty much the embodiment of the American dream. This is a guy who went from nothing and then he ended up in the suburbs of Lake Worth, Florida, which were pretty expensive houses. And he gets married to a wonderful young lady named Margaret, who gets pregnant right away at 18. Margaret, also the American dream of a perfect wife, always has the house clean, the food ready. Charles Sr.'s uh, major job is a plumber. And I mean, I keep telling people, plumbing, carpentry, that's still where the money is in terms of jobs oh 100 yes get you a job where you make stuff or fix things you'll have a job for life uh but on june 24th 1941 charles senior and margaret have their first child charles jr and he was just another perfect aspect to the family um, his neighbor said he was an adorable little boy. As soon as he could walk, he would run around the neighborhood. He made all of the neighbors laugh and smile. He was a very polite kid, very kind. And even when he was far too young to be outside by himself, all the other neighbors who loved the Whitmans had no problem watching Charlie when he was little. Now, Charles Sr., like many men in the 40s and 50s, really left the child rearing to mom. And honestly, Margaret didn't have a problem with it. After Charles Jr. came Patrick and then John, and she was happy to raise all three of her boys. Well, the problem is, and I think you probably understand this, Brian, three kids is a lot of kids. Oh, yes. You don't, even, you don't even have three, and <laughs> sometimes no. I see you. <laughs> but three kids is a lot of kids. And so <laughs> what we find is that Margaret can't be perfect all the time. Maybe she messes up every now and then. And Charles Sr., is like there's absolutely no reason why you should be making any mistakes. He told the family that failure meant you weren't trying hard enough because that is what made him a successful man. And the way that he looked at it was just like, listen, if I can come from nothing, you can do what I need you to do with all the tools in the world. And frankly, I don't like this statement 
if I can do it, anyone can do it. That's not right. true at all. You know, I, I'm a entertainer. I'm a researcher. I'm a reader. I'm a writer. But you know what I'm not good at? Sports. So if you gave me a basketball lesson from LeBron James, it's a wasted Saturday. <laughs> I think it'd be cool. I'd be like, yo, you're such an awesome guy. Let's talk about marketing. You seem real good at that. <laughs> but like, he can, if he gives me a basketball playing lesson, it's wasted on me. Everyone cannot do everything just because you can. And so it's really unfair to Margaret, who's spending her days keeping the house clean and running around after these children, that he's saying that, you know, because I can go to work and come home, you can do all the things at home with no problems. And the other thing is that Charles is just like, I, I gave you the nicest house in this neighborhood. We have you have the best car. Every everything has the best furnishing. Your clothes are always the nicest. I'm asking you to do one thing. But people burn out and they need breaks. And for a lot of housewives, they don't get those breaks. Right. Yeah. And so Charles began to discipline his wife when she made mistakes. It wasn't anything the neighbors noticed, but if they happen to get into a fight. Well, I don't think you could call it they get into a fight if he started a fight with his wife who's just trying to mind her business. Right. He starts yelling and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. He, nobody would see her for a couple of days. And she just wouldn't go to the grocery store. She would just make uh, new food from the leftovers until all the bruises were gone. And nobody knew about this because there was no way that Margaret was going to break the illusion that they were living this perfect American dream. The other issue, though, is that Charles Sr. expected the kids to be perfect, and you can't do that. Not not for kids. Kids are not perfect ever. Well, kids are learning. They're testing boundaries. And at first, it seemed like Charles Sr. understood that. But then he pretty much laid it out for his kids that I don't respect you. And in order for you to earn my respect, you need to be great. And Charles believed that if you gave kids too much praise, it spoiled them. And they wouldn't work to be better. Respect was the most important thing to Charles Sr. Obviously, he probably felt like he didn't have it when he was younger. Because when you're poor, people treat you like trash. And so now that he was a person of means, by the point that the kids are like three, four, five, uh, he owns the company that he was working at before. He expects to be treated with a certain level of respect. And he was known to hit any of the boys immediately if they forgot to call him sir. Um, he would hit Margaret if she tried to come to the children's aid or try and even boost their self-esteem. Charles Sr. is like, listen, you're telling them they're great for doing nothing. It doesn't make any sense. Now, Charles Jr., being the oldest, wanted to appease his dad. And so he spent a lot of time around his dad when he was little. And his younger brothers kind of avoided Charles Sr., because he was known to smack you in the face if you did something wrong. Right. I would avoid a person who hit me too. But Charles, yeah. But Charles Jr. was like, I want to be the best kid. So my dad will tell me he's proud of me. That's really normal. And it kind of worked. Eventually, Charles Sr., when he was old enough to hold a gun, about six or seven years old, began taking him out on hunting trips. And they practiced. And they practiced. And they practiced. And they practiced. And they discovered that Charles Jr. was a very good shot. So good that it's an immediate disappointment when they finally go out to shoot a buck. And Charles Jr. is like, I can't. I don't want to kill something. 
Like, I like shooting at the targets, but, I mean, he's also, like, eight years old. Yeah, like, mm. Well, Charles Sr. is incensed, and I'm sure the first instinct was to hit him, but instead, he decided that he was going to make Charles Jr. come out with him every single time. All his free time was devoted to shooting. After school, he would make him shoot squirrels out of trees on the weekends. He was out shooting bucks um, with the church because they went on hunting expeditions. Pretty much his dad forced him to stop feeling any kind of sentimentality towards animals. And over the course of the next few years, this became the only thing that Charles Sr. cared about. It made him happy to see that his son was excellent at something. Now, this is stressful enough for Charles Jr., but Margaret thought that it would be good if the boys learned how to play piano. So Charles Jr. is killing animals to make his dad happy and learning piano to make his mom happy. This is a lot of stress for a small child. Uh, Charles Sr. didn't really care about the piano, but everything the kids did, he saw as a reflection on himself. And so if ever Charles Jr. didn't want to practice, he would put his belt on top of the piano. And just, like, leave it there. Uh, Also, same time, they give him an IQ test. His IQ comes in at 138, which would put him in the top percentile of intelligence. Uh, The numbers are a little different now, but he would have been considered to be a genius in uh, this era. He went into school as a gifted kid, and I'm sure a lot of people listening understand that there's a lot of pressure for gifted and talented students. Uh, It's something I identify with. And the issue is, as you progress, things that came naturally to you because you're just a smart kid become more difficult. And that's exactly what happened to Charles. Elementary school, easy peasy. Uh, But as he starts progressing into middle school, things get a little harder. The same thing as he goes into high school. And he's he's got this stress that if he doesn't get top grades, his dad's going to hurt him. And he needs to be perfect at piano and perfect at shooting. Uh, and of course, Charles did kind of run into the same thing that I did, which was if you can't be the best at something, what's the point in trying, which is a terrible way to think, but a lot of kids think that way when they're forced to care about being perfect all the time. It's one thing if you, uh, teach your kids, like try your hardest, do your best and whatever happens, we deal with, you know, what we have. But it's another thing to be like the only thing that you can accept is perfection. And if not, you're a failure. Unlike me, though, Charles was just like, I can't give up. Because top grades are days without pain. Days he comes back with a report card. That's all he's. His doc- those his, are good days. Yeah, it's, those are good days. So they're worth working for. Mm hmm. Um, and by the time Charles is in high school, he's taken on entirely too many things. He's playing baseball. He's the star pitcher. He's the manager of the school's football team. He's a member of the Boy Scouts of America. And actually, he became an Eagle Scout at 12 years old, one of the youngest in history. Um, of course, Charles Sr. like that. He got the God and Country Award. Uh, Charles Jr.'s achievements reflected positively on him. Margaret's just like, you don't have to do all this, but it's really great that you're doing it. 
I should pause and pull back a little bit now. Um, the Whitmans are also a very good Catholic family. They attend the Sacred Heart Roman Catholic Church every Sunday. And they are devout Catholics, which means that all of the children have their confirmation. I learned when I researched this that apparently confirmation can happen anywhere between like seven and 16. Uh, but most of my friends, when I was in high school, it happened when they were like 10 or 11 years old. So fourth or fifth grade. Um, and when you do your confirmation, you get to choose uh, a new middle name, like a biblical name. And Charles Jr. chose Joseph. And so that's why he's known uh, by that name. All three of the Whitman boys are altar boys. Uh, also, at this same time, when Charles is like 12, he takes a paper route. And Charles Sr. is just like, you cannot miss any days. And I under, like, I understand that a lot of kids had paper routes in the 50s when they were like, you know in their preteens teens but just just feels like a lot of pressure for a little kid in 1953 now he's got to make his own money money that his dad keeps so like it's not even like he gets to have it oh well well, i'll talk about that in a little bit there's definitely some financial abuse happening here um because charles spent extravagantly for the family but it was something he had complete control over he ruled every amount of money that went through the house. And it was interesting with the, remember I told you that he said, you have to do every single day. Even if it was raining or snowing, Charles Jr. could not miss a day that he was a paper boy. And so um, Margaret was like, don't even worry about it. If it's snowing, I'll just drive you on your route and you can take them house to house. And those kind of became a, a nice moment between Charles Charlie and his mom. Um, The paper route also had, I think it backfired. Charles Sr. at this point in Charlie's life had kind of the whole family believing that this was the way that life was supposed to be. Margaret married him when she was 18. She didn't know any other way. Charles has always known this way. So like when he's doing his paper route, even during like the summer, right? He throws the paper. He sees a kid fall down and a parent go over and and console them. And he realizes, wait, when you fall down, your dad doesn't yell at you? He doesn't know how real people behave until he sees how people treat each other while he's giving out the paper. And that's when he realizes that he's living in a terrible space. Like he thought, you know, maybe everybody's supposed to hate their childhood or, you know, hate their dads. But uh, unfortunately, this is right at the time, the cusp of teenage years. <laughs> so we're combining general teenage unhappiness with also Charles now becoming aware of what's happening. He has all this rage and he has nowhere to put it because he knew if he said anything to his dad, his dad would hurt him. He knew that he couldn't fight anybody at school. His dad would hurt him. So he begins to take out his aggression at the firing range or when he's out hunting. 13, he is very, very good. By 16, he is shooting a squirrel in the eye from a far distance. He would go out hunting with the older men from his church and they were just like, how is he making these impossible shots? Mm. 
Now, after that, he went to Cardinal Newman High School in West Palm Beach, Florida. His dad made sure he had all the best clothes and the nicest watch and a really nice car that he could drive. And he made sure that all the food they had was the best, but it just didn't mean as much to Charles anymore. And so there's a period of like a couple months uh, when Charles is like 16 years old where he's just not eating as much. And Charles Sr. is like, okay, maybe he doesn't want to eat, whatever. But Margaret's just like, no, there's something wrong here. So she takes him to the hospital and they are able to catch his very aflamed, uh, inflamed appendix close to rupturing. So Margaret just being mom of the year here. He had a couple weeks of nice time in the hospital because Charles Sr. wasn't going to go to a hospital. So only his mom and brother showed up. And that was really nice. And he talked to the people in the hospital and made friends with some of the other kids in the kids wing. But it was only a short stay and he was sent back home. And now after this, he's even more fed up because he's like, damn, my dad doesn't care about me at all. I could have gotten really sick. And he was just like, "Eh, ignore it. Now, at the same time, Charles Sr. is contacting every friend that he has. And he's like, listen, my son's getting towards college age. We need to figure out how to get him in the best college. Charles Sr. is planning out Charles Jr.'s life to a T. And I think Charles Sr. must have realized that things were changing inside of his son's head. Because right before his 17th birthday, he presents Charlie and Patrick with motorcycles. And he's just like, you know what? You need to spend less time in the house. It's weird that you spend so much time with your mom. And I think Charles Sr. thought that Margaret was like poisoning the boys. So the two boys are like, dope. It's a motorcycle. And of course they start spending all this time out riding every single day, which does what Charles Sr. wants. Keeps him away from Margaret because he's sure Margaret is conspiring. Oh, yeah, of course. She's just protecting her children. Right. She's just like being nice to them, but whatever. Uh, One day when Patrick and Charles are driving, uh, Charlie are driving. Charles, he loses control of the bike and hits a barrier, slides across the road. The motorcycle is c- destroyed. He's back in the hospital. He actually sustains some kind of head trauma because he apparently had permanent memory loss of the moment before the accident, which is very uncommon. Um, Charles Sr. wasn't entirely sure what happened here. Was this just teenage carelessness? Was he trying to get another vacation in the hospital? Was he trying to kill himself? I'm not sure. But when Charlie woke up from his coma, he seemed to be pretty happy that he wasn't dead. But Charles Sr. doesn't is still not sure about it. He's like, I don't know. He kind of I kind of taught these kids to be real good liars to the outside world. Without the motorcycle, though, Charlie's like, all right, I'm going to spend all my energy on the rest of school. His grades impeccable. His dad's like, all right, I got you into a business school. You're going to a business school. And Charlie's like, sure, whatever. He gets the grades he needs. He has all of these obligations at the end of the year. And Charlie had created this larger than life persona at school. And because of it, everybody wanted him at their graduation celebrations. And even though he still had to go on the hunting expeditions for the church and had his own celebrations to go to, he agreed. And one night when he was at a graduation party, someone handed him a beer. It was just before his 18th birthday, and it seemed like a really good idea. Uh, So much so, he started doing it 
at every party. Until one night he had a little bit too much. It was a kegger with the football team and he walked home drunk. He expected his dad to be asleep. Um, It was very past curfew. And he walked to the back of the house planning to open the kitchen door rather than the front door, which was closer to his parents' room. And as he walks around the side of the house, there's Charles Sr. sitting by the side of the pool in a deck chair, just looking up at the stars. See, Charles Sr. hadn't had a chance to really wallop Charlie in a long time. Charlie had learned the way to avoid his wrath. And so he had been waiting for Charlie to screw up. And as soon as he sees Charlie, he gets up and full force, like a grown man, punches him in the face. Now, Charlie is already drunk and could barely make it home. So there's not like he's going to be able to fight back. Um, And Charles Sr. beats on him for a considerable amount of time, kicks him in the ribs, and then kicked him into their pool, where Charlie literally sank to the bottom like a dead weight and didn't come back. Eventually, Charles Sr. has to grab him out and, like, drops him on the grass and goes back inside. And Charlie makes it into the house and takes off his wet clothes and falls asleep on the floor. He wakes up swollen everywhere and that was the moment I think when all of those adolescent thoughts of how do I get away from my dad they took flight Charles is like I gotta find a way out of here Um, what a lot of people don't realize is that one of the most dangerous moments in a domestic violence situation is when the victim decides to leave Charlie's dad had just tried to kill him just to prove that he could do it. Charlie knew he needed to leave, but he also knew that if he publicly defied his father's wishes, he might actually die. So in leaving his dad, he knew that he had to be quick and he had to be smart. Now in 1959, it wasn't the way that it is now. Like now when we apply to colleges, you have to do it almost like a year in advance. But in 1959, colleges were like, eh, you can make your decision a couple months beforehand, especially if it's coming out of pocket. <laughs> Charles, Charlie knew that he absolutely wanted nothing to do with this business career. And he didn't want his dad looking over his shoulder while he went to a school down the road, then had to stay in the house while he was doing college. So the way to get away from Charles Sr. was to join the Marines. And on July 6, 1959, he signed all the papers and he took a train to the recruitment depot at Paris Island. And I don't mean that like he he left in the middle of the night, like his parents woke up and he was gone. Uh, Charles, the thing is, though, small town. So before the following afternoon, Charles Sr. knows that Charlie got on a train going to Paris Island. And so, of course, he makes the deduction that anybody would. He joined the military. And so he starts calling in everybody he knows, every favor he has, all the way up to some high level people in the federal government. And he's just like, listen, my kid's young. He's stupid. He just made a rash decision. He's supposed to go to business school in two months. And he pretty much begs for Charlie's enlistment to be canceled. But here's the thing. Once you sign those papers for the U.S. government, 
you yeah you're stuck son um and charles senior met the first people he couldn't bully into doing what he wanted which were the u.s military there's no way around this and no amount of money he could spend to get his way and part of that was because charlie was such an exceptional kid the u.s marines were not gonna let him go genius intellect eagle scout medals of honor catholic perfect grades incredible shooter at only 18 years old this is a good candidate (laughs) yeah so and also charlie was 18 he needs dad's permission can't stop him he made his choice now now i'm sure some people are thinking like look all charlie did was just trade him one bully for another but Honestly, Charlie felt a lot of gratitude because when he signed those papers, he definitely told like the enlistment people, like, I can't go home. Um, My dad's violent and he's going to be really upset that I did this. So they actually housed him before basic um, on their dime, protecting him from his dad. Um, So as far as Charlie's concerned, he's like, screw this. The, The Marines are great. It's also interesting, too, because most of the young men who are joining the military at this time, they have never experienced intense discipline or a strict schedule. Charlie goes into boot camp. Oh, he's like, like, oh, this is a cakewalk. Let's get it. (laughs) Yeah. He's like, yeah, I got to get up and exercise every day, but I've been doing that since I was 12 with all my sports teams. And sure, I have to keep my bunk, my bunk spotless and all my gear and guns spotless. But my dad made me do that, too. And at least to Charlie, the ranking of how you treat people in the military made sense to him. Like you have lieutenants and other people who have earned their rank and therefore deserve respect. It wasn't just one guy making up all the rules. Not surprising to anybody. Charlie is exceptional in almost everything he does in boot camp. He's in the top percentile for every test. The Marines can't believe they have such an incredible recruit. After he gets done with basic training, they take they send him to the Marine Corps compound in Cuba where he takes a marksmanship course and gets out of 250 points, 215, which is real high for someone who like nobody who's only been shooting for six weeks or is it how many weeks is the Marines? It's longer. Sorry. I should know this because my dad's a Marine. He's told me a million times 13 weeks. Um, yeah, uh, so yeah, your boot camp is longer for Marines than the other groups, but still, if you picked up a gun for the first time in boot camp, you're not getting 215 mm-hmm. out of 250. Um, he, he's just under expert. He would have been a sharpshooter. Um, it's, it's a very high rank. And so despite the fact that he's good at everything, He never lords it over anyone. He didn't walk around with a chip on his shoulder or act arrogant. And his fellow recruits love him. In fact, like they see how well he's doing and how hard he works. And they're like, damn, I want to I want to be like Charlie. So they start like practicing more and their scores get better. You're just bringing up like you're, you're advancing the curve right now. So immediately people around the base in Cuba are like, oh, this he's got officer written all over him and so one day some of the officers pull him in and they're like we just need to test you on some stuff and they test him on everything that they covered in basic training he 
does very well on everything. They even threw in a couple of tests for things that he hadn't been taught yet. He still graded well. The Marine Corps is just, listen, we knew he seemed like a nice guy, but now that we, we know he's a good person, he follows orders, he's great with a gun, and he's smart as hell. And so those officers are like, you need to go to officer training. And he's like, okay. <laughs> and so he goes to uh, the people in charge and they're like, I would like to go to officer training. And his superiors are, yes, we, we absolutely support this. So the Navy ends up paying for um, his prerequisite university and education uh, as it was like a Navy scientific training program that he'd be taking in mechanical engineering. And they covered his tuition, books, and spending money. All he had to do was pick a university to start. And there were a couple choices. The University of Florida, Gainesville. There were a few in the Pacific Northwest. But he's like, I don't want to go to the Northwest because I don't want to be that far away from my mom. Uh, but I don't want to be in Gainesville because that's too <laughs> close to my dad. So he ultimately decides the University of Texas, the campus in Austin. Um, and after he would finish his, that degree in mechanical engineering, he, goes, he would go back into uh, the Marines, go to officer training, and eventually become an officer for the Marines. This was perfect in his idea because this was the extreme opposite of everything Charles Sr. wanted for his life. Charles Sr. wanted him to become a pencil pusher, and now he's going to get to build stuff for the military. So 18-year-old Charlie gets to UT Austin, and it is awesome. Um, Austin is nothing like he grew up in Florida, and it is very different from Cuba, where he had done a lot of his trainings. There were a lot of different people that he had never even gotten to know before, different styles of clothing, music, just lights in the city. The campus itself is also pretty amazing, and I don't know if you know this, but uh, the population of students on the University uh, of Texas at office. Austin is roughly 50,000 people, including the staff. It's still about that much now. It's about 52,000 now. They, they maintain, it's, I guess, um, I think the only other like bigger campus down in Texas is Texas A&M with like 73 or 75,000. But these are some of the biggest schools in Texas. And they are also very, this is also a very prestigious school. Uh, it can't be an Ivy League because of where it's located, but as far as its level of like you got a degree from Texas, uh, UT, UT Texas, um, UT Austin, sorry, you might as well have an Ivy League degree. It's one of it's it's the ninth like top school in the United States, ninth public school, and number one in all of Texas. And this is like all around ranking of 1700 U.S. colleges. Uh, it has a great reputation, full of scientific excellence. Charles is in an incredible environment and he loves it. These classes are like some of the first he's time he's really felt in a long time that he's engaged. And I totally remember <laughs> that feeling, too. He's making friends. He loves his classes. He has a life of his own for the first time, and he gets to choose what he wants to do. That feels that sounds nice. Of course, just like when he was in high school, he joins way too many extracurriculars. But this isn't because he's trying to create like an impressive record or anything. This time, he just wants to experience everything. Now, one of the only times he ever gets like in trouble as a civilian is when he started hanging out with these guys and they went hunting 
and they go outside of Austin and he and his friends decide to shoot a buck and they bring it back to the dorm and take it into the showers. They're trying to butcher the the buck in the dorm, which of course they get in trouble for. Uh, The (laughs) head of the dorm, not real happy about the bloody bathroom. Charles is like, all right, we're going to stop that for a little bit. He decides to study scuba diving. Uh, Mainly, he never really got a chance to do any of that in Florida, even though they lived near an ocean. And so he becomes a certified scuba diver. This was also because the last time he had been in water at this point was when he almost drowned to death when his dad tried to kill him. So this was also a way for him to push through that fear and not allow Charles Sr. to control him, even though he wasn't nearby. He also did really well in karate. Uh, He used that to help him stay in shape because you got to stay in shape if you're in the military. But he also really enjoyed the philosophical aspect of it. Um, He was taking the class from a Japanese uh, instructor who talked about a concept called Kaizen, which translates very loosely to change for the better. And Charlie looked at that as a quest for perfection, but different from the way that his dad wanted it. Like Charles Sr. had been pushing him to be perfect for other people's opinions. And Charlie is like, well, what's the point in being perfect if you don't have any purpose? And that this should be like a personal goal and personal development. He did really well in karate, unfortunately, for a really bad reason, which was because he was very accustomed to being hit all over his body so when he did sparring matches or tournaments people would hit him pretty hard and he could just eat the hit um he won a lot of tournaments it's all very exciting but charlie needed to remind himself of why he was actually in the university for call for learning and he needed to remember this because he's like listen i got to become a great marine and i never have to live with my father ever again now here's the issue The Marines have a rule and they told him this. He needs to maintain at least a B average or he's going to have to come back to active duty. He's barely maintaining the B average right now because he's doing too much just like before. (laughs) But honestly, college is great. Doing great. September 1961, though, it's going to change Charlie's life a little bit in a different way. What changed? Well, I think that Charles was emotionally safe enough to really focus on other aspects of his life. I do mean a girl. It wasn't as if he hadn't kissed a girl before or anything. It was just he never had the time to have a relationship in his life. So this is a new horizon. Dating. Also, Charles is desperately afraid he's going to grow up to become Charles Sr. And so he kind of avoided women for a while. Um, He's like, I don't want to grow up to be somebody who hits my wife, you know. But even now, you know, he's like 19 and he's very serious about who he's going to date. He like if if it just seemed like it was casual. He wasn't going to care at all. 
He avoids Lot's girls, and then he meets Kathy. Kathleen Lesnar uh, was training to be a school teacher. She's a couple years younger than Charles, so like her freshman year. And Charles loved, she just had brown hair, green eyes, a stellar smile, and people described her as the real girl next door. Like, people really liked her. And their friends also said that it was fireworks when Kathy and Charlie met. It moved quickly, too. So much so that uh, Kathy invites Charles to meet her family. Now, Kathy's father was a wealthy uh, Texas farm. Like, okay, it's called an ice farmer, and I don't know what that means. Yes. I'm like, maybe you need lots of ice. Texas hot. I don't understand. But he was an ice farmer and a real estate developer, and he was paying for education. Kathy had a great dad who was happy as long as she was doing something she enjoyed. When they go meet, Kathy's dad loves Charles. He's like, I can tell he's very serious about my daughter. um, And he cares about her a lot. Good guy. Good choice, Kathy. And they date. They they marry less than a year later. August 1962. Yep, yep, yep. And it was actually a really nice wedding. All like a bunch of their friends from school went back to uh, Middleville, Texas, which is Kathy's hometown, to attend this huge wedding. Charles' family gets invited. He really wasn't expecting them to come. Um, but as soon as they arrive, well, Charles Sr. and Margaret, Charles' mom is so happy to see him because she hasn't seen him since he disappeared in the middle of the night like two years ago. Almost three years ago. Charles uh, Sr. is there and being his normal bland self. Yeah. Um, Charles pastor from when he was a kid, Father Leddick presided over the ceremony. And Father Leddick had been one of the few adult men in Charlie's life that he could talk to about the violence and things that they endured. But because this was very much like this was a thing of the 50s, like dads were violent. It wasn't really something you reported to the police. Um, also, Leddick had been his scoutmaster. Like it was the nicest man he'd ever knew his whole life. Yeah. Now, Margaret was super happy, but the first thing that Charlie sees when she walks into his wedding is that she is very thin. And she flinches every time he moves. Every time Charles Sr. moves towards her. Nobody else really noticed it, but Charlie noticed it because it was the same way that he used to be around his dad. And in that moment, he's like, damn it, I'm a coward. He's like, I left. And of course he's going to take this out on mom and my brother's. Uh, Charlie didn't say much to Charles Sr. In fact, Charles Sr. kind of forces Margaret not to participate in, like, the stuff. You know, like, the dancing and whatnot at the reception. Right. Like, he's there, but they're not allowed to have a good time. It's weird. Uh, I mean, Patrick and John are there, and they do kind of manage to have a good time uh, before... 
Charles Sr. pulls Margaret away and makes them leave early, he does get a moment to talk to his mom. And then they were gone. And in some ways, it's a bit of a relief because Charles Sr. just brings stress with him. But Charlie cares about the rest of his family. Kathy was probably the only person in that room who realized how profound of a moment that it was, it was. Because she learned to read her husband. And even though he hadn't fully told her all of the horrible things that happened in his past, she was able to see that he was going through something very emotional that night. They didn't actually consummate their marriage um, that evening. He was really distraught and just needed somebody to give him a cuddle. And that's what they did. They, they went, you know, to their hotel and they just laid together until the morning. Um, unfortunately, they don't really get a honeymoon. Uh, Kathy and Charles got married right before the start of the new semester. Oh, no. Oh, so they no, have to go right, right back, to, back to college. Yeah, I'm like, y'all should have got married in July. Had a little time right. to go on a beach trip or something. But no, that wedding is a couple days before school starts. Kathy, they get a, they do leave the dorms and they rent an apartment off campus. Kathy's back to her studies. Our boy, our boy Charles is trying to prepare for this mechanical engineering thing. They have a wonderful friend circle and social outlet. And this is when Charles Jr. begins to really doubt if he deserves all these things. And I think this was another reason why one of the reasons why we know so much about Charles' mindset before um, his crime is because he writes a lot about everything and his feelings. And uh, it's, I'm not really ashamed to mention this, but these sort of feelings about not deserving the things that you have are something that I talk about with my therapist right now. And I think it does relate a lot back to um, not feeling like you deserve things when you're little. And so this is kind of where some of this depression and or at least depressive thoughts because he can't let anybody know that he's depressed, but he doesn't realize he doesn't think that he deserves this wonderful wife or their little home or he's, he's, he's like, I'm not a nice husband. I wasn't a good boyfriend. So he works harder. He's like, OK, I'm going to meet her in between every class and walk her to her next class, even if it's out of my way. But of course, that takes away from his time studying. And he starts out this next semester pulling that C average. He's doing too much. And the C, because he's doing too much and he's he's just making himself too thin. And he's scared. Maybe the military won't pay for me to go to school anymore. What will happen if I have to leave Kathy? We've only been married for (laughs) six months, you know and i think what happened here is that charlie inadvertently love bombed kathy i don't think it was on purpose though i think he thought that this was the way to be the best kind of a husband but the problem is you can only shower someone with affection 24 7 for so long eventually you can't keep up the ruse even though he's doing it to try and be good to her it's still not realistic that you only have something positive to say to 
your spouse or your partner every t- every day all the time. It's like we talk about toxic positivity yeah. now in 2022. He needs to spend more time on school, so he has to pull back on meeting her after the classes and walking her back home. Because now he's got to be back in the library, you know. As my mom would have said, you need to get your butt in the library and get those grades up. He's studying so hard. Like, sometimes at night, uh, Kathy would just walk into, like, their little living room, give him a kiss on the head, and leave him a sandwich so that he would eat something. uh, Because he's just focused so much on school. He still feels compelled to do all these extracurriculars. Even though they are taking away vital study time. I don't know if he felt like he just couldn't quit something or he just needed to still be that like golden boy that he was when he was a teenager. I don't know. But at the end of the fall semester, his grades are still C's and the Marines send a letter saying you are scheduled to go back to active duty starting in February. Um, Which is when he gets that letter, he just breaks down and he finally tells Kathy like, I needed to keep my grades in the B's and I just didn't have it. And he's like, now I'm going to have to go back. We haven't even been married that long. I'm so sorry. And Kathy's like, it's fine. I can wait for two years for you to finish your term and your active duty time. Actually, it was supposed to be a total of five. So I think he would have still had three more years left. Um, They pretty much have kind of a really sad Christmas. Um, This is one of the first times that Charles really cries in front of his wife. But she tells him she's willing to wait for him. We'll see each other on holidays. You're my husband. I love you. Uh, he still doesn't tell her about all the horrible things that Charles Seniors did to him. But Kathy's outlook gives him hope. And on February of 1963, he was sent to Camp Lejeune in North Carolina to finish out the rest of his five-year enlistment. This time back in the Marines, he's disgraced. He feels like a failure. Going back to base camp life was now difficult after all this freedom. And he misses his wife. He misses school. He misses being able to do things, whatever he wants to. And you can't do whatever you want when you're on base. And his time at Camp Lejeune was really when Charlie started believing a lot of the horrible things that Charles Sr. had told him. He was he was no longer the exceptional Marine that they met when he was 18. He was average. Sometimes when other soldiers went and did recreational things, he just sat in the mess hall and stared at the wall. This went on for a whole month. And then something happened out on his patrol. Um, they were doing the patrol around and a the, he was there in a Jeep. And the Marine who was driving misjudged a corner, went over the edge of a ditch and flipped a car. Both Charles and the other Marine are very injured and struggling to remain conscious. Um, both have broken bones. Uh And they're in a place where they will be overlooked because of like the the depression that went down. So you can't see the car. And so 
there's a moment where Charles is just like, I could just have what I want. I could just lay here and die. But the pain kind of wakes him up and he crawls himself, he crawls out of the ditch. And he'd write later that the only thing that kept him from dying that night was thinking about Kathy, that Kathy loved him and believed in him and said she would wait for him. So he had to make it back to her. When the next patrol comes by, Charlie and the other soldier are sitting there leaned up against like uh, the, a sign along the road. He pulled he pulled the guy, the other guy out of the ditch. The both of them are passed out. But what they do know is that the other guy was underneath the Jeep. So at some point, even while Charlie had broken bones and injuries, he lifted the Jeep enough to free this other guy who would have absolutely died had he not done it. They end up in the infirmary for a few weeks. Uh, he has his letters from Kathy to keep him happy. Kathy's like, you're incredible. You saved another guy's life. The other soldiers come by. They're like, you saved this guy's life. But Charles is deep, deep in his depression. And he's like, I don't deserve this. His imposter syndrome gets even bigger when he goes back to active duty after he recovers and learns that he's been promoted to Lance Corporal. And the thing is, he does his job to the best of his abilities, but he's like, I don't deserve to be this. I just moved the, right, I just, just pulled a guy out of a ditch. Yeah. So Charles wants to spread his wings a little bit, explore. And one of the ways that uh, a lot of the, the recruits got themselves into a little bit of trouble on base was gambling. Now, gambling is technically against the rules, but a lot of ranking officers overlooked it, kept the kept the younger guys quiet. And everything's good until November of 63, when Charles became fixated on money. See, he had given people little loans here and there, but there was a guy who owed him money. And while Charles was ready to be <laughs> the villain... This this is his villain arc. And he's just like, listen, uh, you owe me money. He threatened a couple of people who owed him money. And at first they laughed at him. And then he really fixated on this one guy who owed him $30, which is about 300 or so dollars today's money. And he's just like, listen, I'm going to charge $15 interest on that loan. So he was charging $150 out of 300 in interest. So the next time Charles saw him, when they were in a little more quiet area, he pretty much flashes the guy his pistol and is like, give me my money. Now, this is serious because all Marine issued weapons go back into lockup when you're done doing your uh, your tour, or not your tour, your, your, your rounds and things. Like at the end of the night, when you're done, you put them away. So this gun couldn't have been a Marine gun. It was charlie's private weapon and the young guy who got strong-armed out of his 45 dollars wasn't really happy about it and so he reports charlie and having a a, a gun that is not military issue on base is a court-martial level offense charlie gets brought up on charges within a day locked up 
and that's when he starts writing in his journal a lot. He called it the daily record of C.J. Whitman. A lot of this writing is about how much he loves Kathleen and how great she is. A big chunk of it is him talking about his day-to-day behaviors locked up. A lot of it is him talking about how much he hates the Marines now. Uh, Trial happens. He, of course, denies that he made any threats to the guy. He is, however, found guilty and court-martialed for gambling. Um, And also something called uh, usury, which is a word I didn't know, but it is the practice of making unethical or immoral monetary loans that unfairly enrich the lender. So usury is like those uh, horrible businesses that give you payday loans. Yeah. He was also charged with possession of a personal firearm on base and threatening another Marine. He was sentenced to 30 days of confinement and 90 days of hard labor and was demoted from Lance Corporal, which was E1, sorry, E3, to a private, which is E1. So he was back to base uh, position. The punishment was uh, very much to Charles. It felt like back being with Charles Sr. And at the end of his confinement, he is completely over the Marines. Um, And they're completely over him because they give him a dishonorable discharge. In 1964, even though he's an incredible shooter, they're like, you know what? We don't really want to keep this guy. He takes all his pay from the months that he's locked up because when you're in trouble, they hold your money. And he takes a train back to Texas. And just like Kathy promised, she was back home. She graduated. Time didn't really stop for her. And she had been planning on moving wherever Charles was stationed. But when he got court-martialed, she was just kind of stuck waiting for him subbing in the local schools and she did manage to get a full-time position as a biology teacher at Lanier High School wasn't a whole lot of money but Charles had been saving for a lot of money so they rent a little cottage in the suburbs of Austin Texas nothing like the home he grew up in but he didn't want to be like his dad anyway um he did integrate back into the friend group a lot of people had moved away after college but they still had a lot of friends in the area and for the first time Charles isn't in a rush to cram every bit of life into a tiny He's moment. He's chill, basically. He relaxed. He wanted to go back to school, but the U.S. government is not going to pay for it anymore. Kathy didn't make enough money for that. So Charles did the thing he didn't want to do. He called his parents. Margaret answered the phone. It was a very awkward conversation. Obviously happy to hear from him, but she couldn't say a whole lot. Charles asks to speak to Charles Sr. And Charles Sr. is like, how's Kathy? How's civilian life? Yada, yada. And finally, Charlie is just like, I need money for college. And Charles Sr. is like, of course I'll give you the money you need so you can finish your degree. Yeah, I'll be needed. (laughs) He's... Well, the thing is, they haggled a little bit because Charles is like, I'll give you anything you want. I'll give you money for a house. That means I can come visit you whenever I like. And Charlie is like, no, no, no. I just need tuition money. I don't need a house. I don't need anything else. I just need tuition money. He's like, I'll call you and keep you up to date. That's what they kind okay. of haggled. Um, because this was a deal, a deal with the devil as far as Charlie was concerned. He went back to his mechanical engineering classes. He got very quickly back up to his B average. He stopped doing all those extracurriculars and just focused on school and home life. Kathy's parents visited. It seemed really nice. 
They got a puppy. Um, the puppy's name was Sakoshi. And Charles didn't really care a lot about pets, but he was like, Kathy loves it. I will take him out for walks and pet him. And then as things start to settle down, Charles gets unhappy again. That's, That's what, what happens when you're depressed. depressed. It sure as fuck is. He's like, you know what? Here I am living off my wife. I'm cooking for her. This is a man's role. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I... Um, yep. I'm not providing for Kathy. I should be providing for Kathy. She shouldn't be doing for me. So he takes on a job. It was supposed to be just extra money, but he works a lot of hours at Central Freight Lines. Just office work, but he felt like a man if he could contribute. And here's the thing. Even with a good job, he still kept up his good grades and he was volunteering as a scoutmaster for Scout Troop 5. The only issue is that Charlie is still struggling with his self-worth. And the problem is you're never going to find your own self-worth in other things or other people. But Charlie's like, maybe the reason why I'm discontent is that I don't really want to be a mechanical engineer. He's like, I started on this path because I was going to use it in the Marines and now I can't be a Marine. So maybe I should have a different major. The problem is he's three years into oh, a program well now. That. Uh, See, he decides not to. Um, and he can only transfer so many credits because most of his key college courses have nothing to do with this new major, which is architecture. So essentially, he has to start all over and he goes back to Charles Sr. And Charles Sr. is, of course, I'll do that for you. Because, of course, for Charles Sr., it was now you're in my debt for a long time. So Charlie switched over to architecture. He also gets a different job. Texas Highway Department, it makes more money. He's a surveyor. He's bringing in a little less money than Kathy, but it's better. By the end of 1965, Charlie is like, I got this. We're great. As an architectural student, he begins to fixate on the tower at the center of the University of Texas campus. Um, you can look up that. It's actually very beautiful. Um, it is called the UT Tower, and it's really pretty. And, well, it's a gorgeous piece of architecture. And for someone who's studying to be an architect, it's a great thing to look at. Um, it's the main building. It's at the center of the University of Texas campus in downtown Austin, Texas. Um, the main building is a, is a 307 foot tower with 27 floors and it is pretty much one of the most recognizable symbols not just of the university but oh, the wow. city of austin it's it, you can mm. like if you're up high you see that and you see the capitol oh, damn, building right like <laughs> okay. yeah it's huge it's beautiful and so he really focuses on that and how much he loves that he goes up there a lot he spends time there looking around at the city he learns about all of the things that happened, like how there were, they were going to turn into a library at one point. Um, and whenever he has an opportunity between his classes, he takes the elevator up to the observation deck and he just looks out across the city. It's one of the few places you can get a 360 view of Austin. Um, and then 
Charlie's like, you know what? I think it's time to give, you know, do my part of the bargain. I'm going to start talking to my family more. So he's talking to, he calls and he talks to his mom and Charles Sr. and his siblings and he schedules these calls. He also starts scheduling calls with Margaret when Charles Sr. is at work. Because they couldn't really say what they wanted to say when he was around. But even through the veiled language, Charlie is able to figure out that Margaret has had it really bad since they left. Patrick, who had received no, like he was the, no one his dad liked at all, had replaced Charlie when Charlie left. And so now Patrick was the new golden boy. He worked for Charles Sr. And the beatings to Margaret were worse. Um, John, the baby of the family, hadn't really been as abused as the other children. He was definitely the rebel of the family. And Charles Jr. was just like, I have to try and help my mom feel better. You know, just say nice things to her because obviously nobody else is. They figured out a way to send postcards and letters to each other that were secret so that when Margaret went out to get the mail in the morning, she would hide the postcards in the pockets of her dresses and then read them later when she was alone. Finally, Margaret got the time to sit down and write him a real letter. And that's when he learned how bad it it really was. Um, She's like, Charles Sr. doesn't really beat me as much anymore, but it's only because I don't fight with him. I just do whatever he says. Um, She's like, I also feel like he hates me and I want to leave. She's like, I don't have any idea how I can because he has everything, all the money, all the power. And when Charles got this letter, he felt awful. And he was just like, mom, when you're ready to go, just let me know. Because as we all know, the domestic violence victims have to choose on their own. You can't force them out of the situation. So in February 1966, Margaret called him and said she was ready to leave. She was filing for divorce. She just needed Charles to come and get her. So Charlie straight up drops everything. Work class, hopped in his car, drove straight to Florida. It took two days. It's normally a two-day trip, but it took him just one. He called the police from a phone booth on the edge of town and was like, listen, my mom's in a violent relationship and I need to pull her out of it. He's like, can you please be nearby just in case this gets violent? Of course, the thing is, Charlie didn't realize that at this point, Charles Sr. is an old guy now. So honestly, even if he had been there, I doubt he would have fought. I think the reason why he stopped beating on Margaret is because he couldn't do it anymore. He's an old man. But either way, Charlie gets there and Charles Sr. actually is at the job, um, you know, putting in a, a good image of showing up. So he doesn't have to do anything. And he's like, take as little of the things that belong to Charles Sr. I will help you buy new stuff. They thank the police officers and then they drive back to Texas. This time a little leisurely. They're just like, oh, finally we're free. Now, Charlie goes into protective mode for his mom. And he, they only ha- he only has to stay, has her stay at the house one night. He finds a new place for her within 24 hours. And that's good because Charlie and Kathy had to sleep out in the living room on the floor and on the couch. Um, 
uh, they get Margaret a job as a cafeteria cook at like a local high school. And then Charlie, okay, now I don't know how Margaret didn't know this, but Charlie gets her a, an apartment, mm. a penthouse. No. It's no. not cheap. It's not enough. It's not enough for what she was making. And essentially, he doesn't tell her that he's paying half of her rent. <laughs> Which, of course, he doesn't have the money for. It's like Charlie from so he takes on another job as a bill collector for the Standard Finance Company to help pay for her rent. <sighs> now, mm-hmm. things calm down a little. A little, a little. And then, you know who shows up in his life? John. John. Now, mom's got a little apartment, and she's paying as much rent as she can. And John moves out the second that he realizes Margaret is gone. The problem is, he gets arrested a month after his parents' divorce is finalized. For throwing a brick through a store window. And honest to goodness, when I looked at this, I was like, why, John? (laughs) Why did you do that? Apparently, he was so drunk. That he didn't even remember why he did it. And so he's in the police station. They're like, well, we're not going to like turn you over to any, just anybody. He's like, it's got to be another adult. And Charles is just like, well, the only other people I can call. Sorry, John says the only people he can call are Charles Sr. or Charles Jr. So he calls Charles Jr. And Charles Jr. is like, crap, I don't want him to have to go back to his dad. Last time I got in trouble, my dad nearly killed me. Uh, so he sends John the $25 fine, which isn't a lot of money, but it's a lot of money for someone who's struggling. Charlie is struggling. So he takes a third job as a bank teller at the Austin National Bank, taking shifts in between his classes. Pretty much abandoning the few hours he had out of the day. To relax, to work. And that time could be spent with the wife too. True. His grades start to shift. Not enough to be bad or have him be kicked out of his major, but enough that he felt this felt a lot like the semester before he had to go back in the Marines. He this was a pattern now for him. He's like, I'm doing too much. And so he quits being a scout leader. But that's not enough because those are only like one, two Saturdays a month. The other jobs are still taking too much time out of his life. He's not spending any time with anyone. He starts having these horrible tension headaches, would mess up his concentration when he was trying to do his homework. Then Charles Sr. started calling and he would call at random hours in the middle of the day. And of course, Charlie picked up the phone and Charles Sr. is like, I'm so sad that Margaret divorced me. Put in a good word for me, Charlie, you know. Charlie already isn't sleeping. And now these calls are like right when he's had trying to have a nap in the middle of the day. He's not eating. He's getting, he's just spread too thin. He actually goes to a campus doctor about how exhausted he is. And they prescribe him Dexedrin. Um, And for what people don't know, Dexedrin is an amphetamine. So these are pet pills and Charlie is zooming. Um, you know how like when they say you're depressed and they give you depression medicine? I don't I, know if you've ever taken medicine for this. They, they but I have. Um, 
Um, well, the issue is they actually talk to you in the first couple of months. Like they check in with you a lot and they go, because the thing is you don't really feel good, good, but you feel good enough that if you were thinking about suicide, you might do it. So that's why they check in with people to ask if those feelings have encouraged. So in this well, because the thing is, if you keep going and you pass that threshold, you get to the point where you mm. actually feel better. Um, not just like I always wonder. Complete. Yeah, dirt. I always wonder what like, the point because oh. it like it makes you like more clear and like you know what I can actually do this. And then you know what I mean. It, it just it just I don't know. That's why I never took it. Like okay. <laughs> it's um well. The issue with this is that the pet pills are like. Charlie's like, I'm a terrible husband. I'm terrible at school. Um, nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. He's like, you know what I should do? Leave. And literally, he one afternoon, he packs up all of his stuff while Kathy's at work. And he is about to hit the road. And there's a knock on the door from one of his friends, Larry Foose, a former engineering student. And Larry just showed up because that's what Larry did. He knew that if he just showed up, people couldn't be like, ah, no, I'm sorry, Larry. And Larry's like, why are you leaving? And Larry described the situation as Charlie looking like a wild-eyed maniac. Nobody really knew how bad it was until that moment. And Charles just blurts it out about how overworked he is. And he's talking about how he had all these grand plans for life, but they were ruined. And so... Larry is like, can you call the doctor and make another appointment for yourself? So he does that. But then as soon as Larry leaves, he cancels it. He does put his stuff back up. He's like, I don't need any pills. I just need to keep doing this a little bit longer till I catch up. And then one day he hit Kathy. It was a completely minor argument and he blacked out. And when he woke up, Kathy was on the floor And Charles is distraught because he's like, oh, no, I'm him. You become my dad. And he helps Kathy get back on her feet. He gets ice for her. She accepted his apology. But he's like, I don't deserve this. This is the one thing I promised I would never, ever do to anyone else. And he's like, Kathy. Well, he wants to tell Kathy to leave. Go find yourself a life with someone who's going to love you and take care of you. But Charles can't say that because he needs her. He loves her. He's like, I'm too stressed. You know what I'm going to do? Start writing. And he gets a typewriter and he starts setting guidelines and rules and trying to organize his life again. He thinks that if his life is more organized, that these things won't happen. So he starts writing all these affirmations and like, you know, on the typewriter and they're all over the house. Stop procrastinating. Control your anger. Smile. It's contagious. Don't be belligerent. Stop cursing. Improve your vocabulary. Approach a pot of gold with exceptional caution. Look over it twice. Pay that compliment. Listen more than you speak. Think before you speak. Just a lot of those. I would never (laughs) And he typed out. (laughs) Well, he types out this whole list on like how to be a better husband. Um, He's like, pay attention, give appreciation, be courteous, be gentle. He wrote, be gentle a lot. 
don't nag. Don't criticize your partner. And um, this didn't fully help because he was still lashing out at Kathy. And every time it happened, he was freaked out. He was especially freaked out by the fact that he blacked out in anger over what he felt was a minor thing. He starts filling the journals um, and he's essentially trying to diagnose himself. Some people think that he had something called hypergraphia, um, which is an obsessive impulsive an obsessive impulse to write. But they might have because it is associated with a frontal lobe epilepsy and can be triggered by a lot of things, including things that adjust your brain chemistry, like dexedrine. Now, the writing wasn't all a bad thing, though. It did have some good purposes. Sometimes it did help him if he got like mad at Kathy. He would walk away and write something down. But still, March of 1966, Charles goes to the university for help and he sees Dr. Jan Cochran who immediately just sitting in his office, Dr. Cochran can tell that Charles is very anxious and very agitated. So Dr. Cochran prescribes Valium. Oh, oh okay. Sorry, I had a <laughs> weird sound in my mic for a second. I don't know. It must have been on a computer sound. Sorry about that. Uh, I'll start that sentence again. <laughs> so Dr. Cochran prescribes Valium to try and bring his stress levels down to a normal level. Uh, Dr. Cochran also says, hey, maybe you should talk to a, like a therapist. Charles isn't really a fan of it, but he schedules an appointment for March 29th with Dr. Uh, Murray Heatley. Heatley described Charles as a massive, muscular youth oozing with hostility. They have this meeting. It takes about two hours. And in the meeting, Heatley does manage to kind of pull the truth out of Charles. Charles admitted that he had hit Kathy twice. And both of those situations, he said he was completely out of control and he didn't remember doing it. He told Dr. Heatley he didn't understand where this aggression was coming from. And of course, the psychiatrist is like, well, it's your childhood and it's a relationship with your dad. But Charles doesn't believe it's as simple as that. Um, he talked to the doctor about the first time he got removed from school, the court martial, how he felt like he was failing and he would get kicked out again, how he wasn't getting the grades he'd always been able to, how his wife was out earning him and how he was supposed to be the breadwinner, but he couldn't take care of her. And he's like, what if Kathy realizes just how much of a bum she's married to? And even through all of this, he feels like he still has to keep up his appearances. He told the doctor how outside of his tutors, nobody knows that he's struggling in class. Um, everybody knew, everyone thought he had the perfect marriage and a perfect wife and everything was going great for him. And he actually said to the doctor, maybe, that, maybe I still can have a perfect life. Now, Dr. Heatley, of course, fixates on the recent divorce of his parents and Charles is like, I had these problems, these thoughts before they got divorced. And so as the appointment progresses, Charles says, sometimes I think about going up to that big tower in the middle of campus with a deer rifle and just shooting people. To Dr. Heatley, this just sounds like regular stress. Yes, Charles is emotionally unstable, but he's not showing any signs of psychosis. 
So the doctor writes down that he doesn't have any fear of Charlie acting out these fantasies. He feels like Charlie is very much connected to logic and reality still. And honestly, Dr. Heatley saw dozens of students with suicidal ideation every single day. Um, And uh, most of them talked about, I'm going to go to the top of the tower and jump. Uh, So he was just like, "Ah." ultimately, though, Charlie feels like this experience with the therapist did not go well. And all it did was made him feel terrible because he had to talk about all the horrible things in his life. And he's like, I just wanted this doctor to prescribe something to help me. He's like, because the Valium doesn't help me feel better. It just helps you feel numb. Actually, he he wrote in some of his many, many journals that he felt like the Valium kind of made him lag. That's the way he doesn't obviously describe it as lag because that's a gamer term. But he said it made him feel like his own life. He was lagging. Like something would happen. And then after it, he would like arrive back at what just happened. Um the dexatrin gave him too much energy, which only further increased the rage. Dr. Heatley's like, I would like you to visit me every week. And he even gives Charlie his personal phone number. But Charlie just looks at Dr. Heatley as like, you were the person who was supposed to fix me. And Dr. Heatley is looking at this as like, we have a long couple years of therapy in our future. Oh, so, yeah. Charlie sits down after this meeting and he's just like, I'm just like my dad. I'm going to hurt everybody around me. Don't you hate that feeling? And he's like, you you probably would. I mean, well, so he sits down and he's just like, if I just kill myself, Margaret's going to go back to Charles senior. He's like, maybe Kathy will be okay. She'll go back to live with her parents, but she'll be really, really hurt. And I don't want to hurt her. (sighs) Which is when Charles makes the plan that he would eventually follow through with. Once a lot of people decide, once you decide to kill yourself, it's said that the person experiences a level of calm. And all of Charles' friends noticed this. It was like he suddenly was enjoying life again. Kathy had a summer job at the telephone company since the school year was over. And even though he was taking summer courses, he would still take her to work and back. Um, Every day, he would pick up his mom from her cafeteria job, take her out to see a movie or walk around somewhere. (sighs) Spend time with her. We don't really know why, but he decided on August 1st, 1966, that this is what he was going to do. We know that he had a test and he had no intention of taking it. He spent the entire week before August 1st having a marvelous time with his friends and family. On the day before, he dropped Kathy off at work, did some shopping, picked up a new hunting rifle, gathered supplies, stopped at his mother's job, took her to a film, took her back home to the penthouse apartments, then sat down at the kitchen at 6.45 p.m. and began writing. Now, I'm going to try and keep it together, but part of reading this suicide note was emotional for me when I first read it. It says, I don't quite understand what compels me to type this letter. 
Perhaps it is to leave some vague reason for the actions I have recently performed. I don't really understand myself these days. I'm supposed to be an average, reasonable, intelligent young man. However, lately I can't recall when this started. I have been a victim of many unusual and irrational thoughts. These thoughts constantly recur and it takes a tremendous mental effort to concentrate on useful or progressive tasks. I'm not uh, at that moment, a knock on the door. Oh Larry, God. it's Larry again. Why does Larry <laughs> always show up when he is in the middle of an emotional crisis? This man had a great timing, but he didn't oh know how to do anything. Either way, Larry shows up with his wife and uh, the two of them stop by for a chat. And they're like, hey, what's the typewriter? And he's like, I'm writing letters to old friends. Which actually makes Larry feel really good in the moment. He's like, wait, if he's writing letters to our old friends, he's not contemplated leaving. Because that was the last time, you know. So when Larry leaves, he goes back to his letter. Um, He says, in March, when my parents made a physical break, I noticed a great deal of stress. I consulted a Dr. Cochran at the University Health Center and asked him to recommend someone that I could consult about some psychiatric disorders I felt I had. I talked with a doctor once for about two hours and tried to convey to him my fears that I felt come overwhelming violent impulses. After one session, I never saw the doctor again. And since then, I have been fighting my mental turmoil alone and seemingly to no avail. After my death, I wish to have an autopsy would be performed on me to see if there is any visible physical disorder. I have had some tremendous headaches in the past and consumed two large bottles of gosh, what's the pill? Um, pain pills in the past three months. It was after much thought that I decided to kill my wife, Kathy, tonight. After I pick her up from work at the telephone company, I love her dearly, and she has been a fine wife, as fine a wife to me as any man could ever hope to have. I cannot rationally pinpoint any specific reason for doing this. I don't know whether it is selfishness or if I don't want her to face the embarrassment that my actions would surely cause. At this time, though, the prominent reason in my mind is that I truly do not consider this world one worth living in. And I'm prepared to die and I do not want to leave her alone to suffer in it. I intend to kill her as painlessly as possible. With that, it was almost time. It was 845. Okay. Um, It was 845 and it was time to pick up Kathy. He set the typewriter aside, left the note in the same place so that he could add things to it later if he wanted. And he went to pick up Kathy from work. She hopped into their car a little after 10 p.m. and he drove home. Kathy was really tired and she was actually kind of falling asleep in the seat. But he took her into the house, helped her out of her clothes, got her in the bed, kissed her on her forehead. He told her he'd be right back. He just had to run an errand. The errand was that he went to his mother's house. She was asleep when he arrived, but once she realized it was him, she was fine. She wouldn't have ever noticed the knife on his hip because he always wore that knife. And the gun he had in the small of his back would have made her quite scared. Really, she was just like, what are you doing? It's almost midnight. Um, We can only guess at what happened next. He didn't go into details in his note, but we know that for some reason... Margaret must have like fought him in some way because her one arm was broken and some of her fingers um, were like destroyed. Um, Her wedding ring, the diamond got knocked out of the ring um, and it was in the like flesh of her skin 
and the gold and the diamond were touching bone. After that first attack, he stabbed her in the chest with so much force that it would have knocked her to the ground. And then with Margaret laying face down on the floor, he shot her in the back of the head, then picked her up, put her into the bed, um, wiped his knife on her dress, rearranged her, night- rearranged her nightgown so that she was dignified. He wrote a little note for the police and it said, uh, Monday, the 1st of August, to whom it may concern, I have taken my mother's life. I'm very upset about having done it. However, I feel that if there is a heaven, then she is definitely there now. And there, if there is no life after, I have relieved her suffering here on earth. The intense hatred I feel from my father is beyond description. My mother gave that man the best 25 years of her life, and she finally took enough of his beatings, humiliation, and degradation and tribulations that I'm sure that nobody but she and he will ever know. He had chosen to treat her like a slut that you would beat down oh, a bed down with, except her favorites. Uh, and then throw a pittance and return. I'm truly sorry that this is the only way I could see to relieve her suffering, but I think it was the best that there'll be no doubt in your mind that I love that woman with all my heart. If there exists a God, let him understand my actions and judge me accordingly. And he folded up that letter and put it under the covers next to his mother's body. He went to the bathroom, he cleaned off, and it was time to go home. To make sure that no one would find... Margaret before he was ready for them to find her he uh he knew that her neighbor Roy would come back home late and would knock on her door in the morning because they had a night shift and so she wrote a note for Roy that says I don't have to be at work today I was up late last night I'd like to get some rest please do not disturb me thank you Mrs. Whitman back at home he took out his knife and he stabbed Kathy with so much force that it went directly into her heart without touching her ribs. In fact, the knife guard hit so hard into her chest that it left a perfect indentation. Uh, She died instantly. He was at least able to fulfill that promise that he wrote in his note. From that point forward, he cleaned off his blood. He went back to the typewriter, picked up where he left off. He said, similar reasons provoke me to take my mother's life also. I don't think the poor woman has ever enjoyed life as she's entitled to. She was a simple young woman who married a possessive and dominating man all my life until I ran away from home to join the Marine Corps. And with that, he ran out of ink and he wrote the rest by hand. I was witness to her being beat at least once a month. Uh, When she took enough, my father wanted to fight to keep her below her usual standard of living. I imagine it appears that I brutally killed both of my loved ones. I am only trying to do a quick and thorough job. If my life insurance policy is valid, please see that all the worthless checks I wrote this weekend are made good. Please pay off all the debts. I am 25 years old and have never been financially independent. Donate the rest anonymously to a mental health foundation. Maybe research can prevent further tragedies of this type. And then he signed Charles Whitman Jr. It was done. He had explained it the best way that he could in his own way. The only thing left was the dog. I guess a lot of people wonder why he didn't kill the dog. But maybe he just didn't have it in him. He made an addendum. Please take Sakoshi to my in-laws. Tell them Kathy loves Sakoshi very much. It's, it's because you like dogs. And, and you're not going to tell a tale about dogs. <laughs> That's what it is. <laughs> Um, and he wrote a letter to his brother, Patrick, that said, you are so wrong about mom. Maybe someday you'll understand why she left daddy. 
Pat, mom didn't have any desire to harm dad whatsoever. She just wanted what she worked for. She really needed that $40. Thank you for sending it. She'll never forget that. He wrote a couple more letters to his friends uh, who visited him. And then he added one more thing to his official suicide letter, which is, if you can find it in your heart to grant me my last wish, cremate me after the autopsy. He gathered up all the letters, tucked them into an envelope that had the phrase thoughts of the day on it. And then he put that with two rolls of undeveloped film from the last time that Kathy's parents visit and his brother John had visited. As a final note on the envelope, he wrote, I never could quite make it. These thoughts are too much for me. He slept in the living room that night and at 5.45 a.m. on August 1st, Charles called Kathy's supervisor saying that she didn't feel well and she wasn't going to be at work today. He filled up his old marine trunk with things you might need, food, extension cords, flashlights, batteries, tape, ammunition, gun cleaning kits, radio, blank notebook and pens, towel, sweatband, three-gallon jug of water, three-gallon jug of gasoline, ropes, clotheslines, a compass, an alarm clock, a pipe wrench, spare clothing, and sunglasses. Then he went out and cashed $250 in bad checks at a local bank, uh, got I went to a rental company where he got a dolly to help him move his very big trunk. Um, he stopped at Davis's hardware store and got rebar, a machete, and a locking pocket knife. Also an M1 carbine. It was a bigger gun than he would normally use for hunting. He told the shop assistant he was going to use it to kill feral hogs. Because apparently this was a big deal outside of Austin at the time. So if you were hunting feral hogs, you could haunt them any all year round. He went to Sears where he bought a green rifle case and a shotgun. He got that one on a payment plan. He went home. He sawed off the shotgun. He talked to the postman. The postman Chester was like, I'm pretty sure cutting off the stock of that gun is illegal. But he wasn't going to tell anybody about it. They laughed. He left. Uh, He loaded up the guns into the trunk. He also added a Remington 700 hunting rifle uh, with a four-time scope, the M1 carbine, a 357 Magnum, an old Luger pistol, a brush pistol. All the rest of the guns, um, except for the shotgun, were very much legal. He traveled the whole, put the whole thing on a dolly, put on a set of overalls and a jacket to destroy, kind of disguise his military-esque looking outfit. Um, he stopped at 10.30 a.m. to call his mom's job to let her know that she was sick. He rolled a dolly to the car. He drove right up to the campus parking lot, spoke to a security guard named Jack Rodman, who gave him a parking pass. He walked through the open spaces between the buildings to the main tower. At 11.30 a.m., he rolled the dolly through the entrance of the main building across the elevator and pressed the top button, 27. Um, He still had to take this outlandishly huge box of three more flights of steps to the observation deck. When he got there, there was only uh, one other person. The receptionist for the observation deck who was 51 years old. My stupid finger is not (laughs) writing the right name. I want to get her name right because he killed her. Um, Sorry, let's 
I want to. I just want to have her name right because I'm gonna see her name was Edna Elizabeth Townsley. Townsley. She was 51 and she worked at as the receptionist. She was very well known to everyone on campus for having worked there for so long, and she had a, a very distinctive laugh that people thought was pretty funny. When Edna saw Charles, she thought that he was just a maintenance guy and she walked up to him to ask him what was going on and he hit her with the butt of his rifle into her eye socket, breaking her eye socket and knocking a part of her skull out of its structure. When she fell to the ground, Charlie hit the back of her head with the rifle and then dragged her behind the sofa near the receptionist's desk. She wasn't dead, but she was unconscious enough that she wouldn't be a problem. A couple people randomly walked into the tower before he could block the stairwell, even though he was carrying a rifle in his hands. This was a different day and age. They thought he must have been up there shooting birds or something, and they were like, ah, we're going to leave. He counted to make sure they were gone. He's absolutely right because the next people who came upstairs, he started shooting at them. Um, there was a man by the name of MJ Kapoor, Gabor. Um, the whole family, it was Mike Gabor, Martin Gabor. Uh, Mike was 19. Martin was 16. Marguerite Lampour was 56. That was their aunt. Mary Frances Gabor was the boy's mother at 41. And... MJ was dad who brought his whole family to visit his sister um, who lived in Marguerite lived in Austin. Um, Mike and Mark were coming up the steps and these are two teen boys. So when they see that the door isn't moving, they just kind of start pushing it because at this point he had pushed like all of the furniture up against the door. And as soon as they pushed it enough to push their way through, he opened fire with the shotgun. Um, Martin was killed immediately. He took a shotgun to the face at close range. Virtually no head left. Um, strangely enough, the 19-year-old Mike, not dead, um, manages to survive that. Uh, he, so he takes shot at both Marguerite and Mary Frances, who... Um, ultimately die. MJ and his friend William are just kind of staring. And William's like, I'm going to go get help. And ultimately, like while Charlie is reloading, he pulls MJ out of the way. So dad ultimately ends up surviving. Um, what happens next is that, I don't know, I guess MJ was scared. And he just stayed on the the 27th floor. But William actually ran for help. Um, At that point, he kind of pushed uh, Mark over onto the steps, closed the door again, locked it, and pushed everything up against it. Uh, He put a bullet in the back of Edna's head. And then he stepped out onto the observation deck. His first, I guess, official, yeah, his victim on the the walkway was Claire Wilson and Thomas Ackerman. They were heading to their first year anthropology class. 
and had stopped at the student union to get a drink before heading over. Claire was eight months pregnant and she took a lot of breaks. They were about halfway towards their class when they heard a cracking sound. Um, Thomas turned and he noticed that Claire had been shot in her stomach. This is another one of those impossible shots that Charles was able to make. Because that shot into her abdomen went through the skull of her unborn child. It is in... And it it was more than likely very much on purpose because he took a lot of absolutely wild shots um, over the next hour. Uh, When Thomas Ackerman stopped to lean over and help her, um, he was shot in the skull. Yep. And baby boy Ackerman is what they refer to Claire Wilson's son. Um, he was shot. Sorry, no. The, he was shot in the chest. Um, Claire would actually survive, even though I doubt she wanted to. After this, the next victim was 33-year-old Robert Hamlin Boyer, a mathematician at the university, who was walking across campus with one of his PhD students. Robert was shot in his lower back and did not die instantly, but it was very much a horrible death. It was the kind of shot that would have broken his spine and sent bone fragments into his kidney, liver, bladder, intestines. Um, He was considered to be one of the greatest minds uh, of his age, and he was killed that day. Uh, His student... (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Oh, it's a lot. These are a lot. Um, Hoffman was shot next in the arm. Hoffman decided to fall to the ground and pretend to be dead. Um, A secretary named Charlotte Darashuri tried to run and help them, but she couldn't get to them. She ended up just hiding behind a concrete flagpole. Um, There was also... This is the part that I should have separated into sections. The next victim was David Matson, 22. Uh, and it was David Matson, Roland Elk, Tom Herman, and Thomas Aquinas Ashton, along with Homer J. Kelly. Uh, the younger men were 22 and 21 years old. Homer J. Kelly was 64 and he was a shopkeeper. Um, Matson, Elk, and Herman were walking to lunch when a bullet went through Matson's wrist. Um, Elk got hit by the shrapnel and then in the leg by another bullet, bullet when he tried to cover his friend. Um, Homer Kelly was shot in the leg when he pretty much opened up his shop, do- shop door and just started oh, pulling wow. them inside. Um. Thomas Aquinas Ashton was shot in the chest. He was actually on the way to meet them for lunch. And so they didn't actually connect uh, because of the shooting. They were all Peace Corps volunteers. Uh, Nancy Harvey and Ellen Evgenides were both students. Nancy was 21 and Ellen was 26. They were leaving the tower actually for lunch because the bottom part of the building actually has Mm -hmm. classrooms and stuff. 
um, they went inside and after a while, a guard was like, oh, it's safe. And a hundred yards away from the tower, Nancy Harvey was shot in the hip and Ellen was struck in the left leg by the ricochet of the original shot. Yep. Alec Hernandez, 17, Karen Griffith, 17, and Thomas Ray Carr, 24, um, were all near. It was the West Mall entrance and it was about 1145. Hernandez was delivering a newspaper on his bicycle and Karen Griffith was shot in the shoulder and her chest. Um, Her right lung was pierced. She died seven days after. Carr was hit in the spine while trying to help uh, his friend Karen. He died one hour later. At 11.55, David Hubert Gumby and Brenda Littlefield and Adrian Littlefield, siblings who were 18 and 19 years old, uh, David was returning a book to the library when a shot passed through his upper left arm, entered his abdomen, and severed his small intestines. The Littlefields, Brenda and Adrian, had just been married nine days before, and they were leaving the tower when Brenda was shot in the hip and Adrian was stuck, struck in the back when he bent over. All three actually ended up getting rescued because at this time, the police arrived with an armored car. Um which they brought to help remove the injured. Um, This is pretty jacked up, actually. But during their surgery, they discovered that David Gumby only had one functioning kidney to begin with, which had now been severely damaged. He was in pain for the rest of his life. And in 2001, he was told that his dialysis was failing and he was going to go blind. And he just decided to stop dialysis. Um, His death is marked as a homicide. Because it is related to what happened on August 1st. <laughs> this is terrible. So, I mean. I know. I know. But I feel compelled to say everybody's right, yeah, name who course, was hurt. I have to say all of them. I can't ignore them. Claudia Rutt, 18. Paul Bolton Sontag, 18. Um, boyfriend and girlfriend. They had just run into their friend, Carla Sue Wheeler, also 18 as a student. Um, They heard shots and they hid behind a construction barricade immediately. But at some point when it got quiet, Paul Sontag looked up over the barricade and he was immediately shot in the mouth and he died instantly. Um, Claudia tried to reach her boyfriend and Carla tried to restrain her friend. A shot went through Carla's hand and struck Claudia in the chest. Um, and one of the saddest things that happened that day, um, Paul Sontag's grandfather was the news director for the local radio, the local TV news station, KTBC. And um, his grandfather, Paul Bolton, learned that his grandson died on air as oh, he wow. named this is like the victim. Names, names that rolling night up on the and news. Then that's the names. <sighs> yep. Roy Dell Schmidt was 29 and an electrician. An electrician. He took cover behind his car 500 yards away from the tower. He sat there for 30 minutes and was just like, it's got to be over by now, right? And as soon as he stood up, he was shot in the abdomen. He is, his was the fatality that happened the furthest away from the tower. 
Billy Paul Speed was a police officer. He was one of the first people on site. He was 24 years old. He got there at 1208. Uh, they were, he and another officer were hiding behind these balusters on the South Mall. And Paul, uh, so Billy Speed was shot through the gap in the masonry. He died shortly after at the hospital. Um, Harry Walchuk was 38, a PhD student. He was leaving a magazine store on uh, Guadalupe Street when he was shot in the chest. He was nowhere near there. It just, it just it happened. Just... Because he's taking shots that are 100, 200, right, 300, yeah. 400. He, he, We're talking about 460 kind of years away, three, like 500 it's yards. Like, it's like a sniper. He's one of the it's, it's, like a, it, it's a distance weapon, basically. Mm-hmm. Combined piece. Um, for um, so there are so these these just shots are coming in at like a quarter to a half a mile away from where he is. They're highly un- improbable. So like Guadalupe Street is nowhere close to this, but there are a couple people who got shot on Guadalupe. Sandra Wilson, uh, she was twenty one. She was shot in the chest just walking down the street. Abdul Kashab, an exchange student from Iraq. He was there with his um, fiance, Janet Paulos. They were shot on Guadalupe in 24th. Lana Phillips, 21. She thought she was out of range and she randomly got shot in the shoulder. Oscar Oivella and his girlfriend, Irma Garcia, both 21, were shot near Hogg Auditorium. Um, two of the students, two other students, Jack Stevens and Jack Pennington, saw them go down and dragged them to safety. Um, Avelina Esparza, 26, um, was shot in the left arm near the shoulder, which shattered the bone. Uh, his brother and uncle grabbed him. Robert Hurd was a reporter and a formal Marine who showed up there to get the scoop and got shot in the arm. John Scott Allen, 18, was at the Student Union building looking at the tower through a window when a bullet struck the window followed almost immediately by a second shot which severed an artery in his right forearm he was 18 morris homan 30 was a funeral director um he brought his business's ambulance vehicle to try and take people to the hospital and during one of the crossings back when he had people in the back he got shot in his right leg at the corner of 23rd and Guadalupe. He later told the press, I laid there for about 45 minutes listening to two construction workers arguing about who was going to come out and try and save me. <laughs> That's terrible. Yeah. Um, F. L. Foster, don't have an age for him, and Robert Freed, 19, were wounded in the crossfire between Whitman and the people shooting from the ground. Mm-hmm. I'll get into that in a moment. Uh, Della and Marina Martinez were visiting from Monterey, Mexico. They were also wounded by stray bullet fragments. Dolores Ortega was 30 and suffered a cut to the back of her head. They're not sure if it was from flying glass or a grazing bullet, but either way, still scary. And then C.A. Stewart was another student who was not shot, but got injured in the general commotion of people running away. And I just... Whenever I cover any of these, I feel very compelled to mention the people who were there. 
One of the reasons that they believe that so many people who um, stayed out of the mall, as they call it, that's the area in the center of campus, is because there was um, there was construction happening on campus. So some people thought that this was construction sounds. And other people thought that, you know, people fall into the crown were maybe some dramatic theater majors or this was an anti-war protest because the Vietnam War had recently started. The people who did realize what it was happening, though, stepped in immediately and saved several people's lives. As far as the police response, I'm going to fold back a little bit in time. Um, the police were informed uh, by a history teacher who heard the shots and knew they were bullets at 1152. Um, like I said, Billy Speed was one of the first officers to arrive. He got shot between that column and it did kill him. Officer Houston McCoy was 26. He heard the shooting on his radio. Um, and it was pretty per perplexed. Like he heard that whoever the shooter is had barricaded himself on the top floor. Um, McCoy pretty much busies himself trying to find the best way into the tower. Um, another student's like, hey, I have a rifle at home. And the police officer was like, <laughs> go get it. Um, Alan Crom was a 40-year-old retired Air Force tail gunner who managed a bookstore on campus. He noticed the 17-year-old newspaper boy being dragged into the store, and he was like, is that a fight? And then he was like, holy crap, people are being, are people are being shot. So what Crum did was he stopped street traffic. He went out into the street near his shop, and he stopped people from coming closer to the tower. Uh, he was not able to make his way back to his store, um, but ultimately he did make his way over to the tower where he offered to help the police. He goes inside with them and it's the, a member of the public safety department. Okay. Doug Cohen. And one police officer. So we got three <laughs> dudes. <laughs> they give him a rifle and they're like, you know what? You were in the air force. You can help us. So shots are happening. Um, Officer uh, Moraira Ramiro Martinez is off duty, but saw it on TV, goes to the uh, campus to help direct traffic. When he gets there, he sees that other people are already stopping traffic. So he goes to the tower and he, as he arrives at 27, he oh. sees only three people up there. And he's just like, uh, the, that's mainly because most of the other police trying to get to the tower at this point, he's focusing all his attention on the cops and they are actively shooting up at him in the tower. What this does though, was take away some of his, uh, mm -hmm. attention from the other no, areas smart, around smart. there where he was shooting people. So it was helpful. They did make a good distraction and keep him focused on one area shooting at the police. That's, of course, where that one guy got hurt from the bullets, fragments and things. Because um, the issue is, it's not easy to shoot up in the air. you got gravity working against you. Um, the police even bring in a sharpshooter on a tiny plane trying to shoot at Charles, but he manages to actually get some nice shots at the airplane and has to make sure they fly back. But the plane also keeps him distracted because the plane keeps making rounds around the tower and he doesn't know when he's going to get shot at. So he has to keep ducking. 
So these four people, right? They're up on the 27th floor. They find MJ Gabor, who's completely in a state of like panic. And so uh, Day decides, I'll take you downstairs to safety. Now that leaves us again. <laughs> Three dudes. So Crumb is just like, uh, are we playing for keeps? And Martinez says, you're damn right we're playing for keeps. And Crumb says, well, you better deputize me. Which is pretty much him, they, them saying, we're shooting to kill. There's right. no taking this guy in safely. Um, and of course, the answer was absolutely we're taking him out. He's already killed like 10 people. The stairwell to the reception area, they find Marguerite and Mark Gabor both dead. Um, Mary and Mike are still alive. And Mike just kind of gestures at the officers. He's up there. Because he's hurt. He's down on the ground. He's 19. Uh, he was a uh, He's a vet, too. He was an Air Force vet. Uh, just, right. you know, cool guy. Uh, Martinez gets to the observation deck first. McCoy reaches literally, like, seconds later. At some point, Crumb accidentally fires his rifle. It's 124. And so Charles sees, like, here's that and looks towards that shot, which is at the south of the observation deck. Martinez shoots Charles with his pistol, sorry, correction, a revolver, and misses him. McCoy manages to shoot him right between the eyes, killing Charles Whitman Jr. instantly. Immediately afterward, Martinez almost gets shot because he looks over the edge of the tower and oh, the people are still shooting shooter. up <laughs> who don't real yeah they don't realize that he's dead he's like oh god no but he's safe he's fine um and honestly the people of austin really came out and they really looked after each other and i'm not someone to be like rah rah pro guns but this is one of the few situations where citizens helping actually did make this a less horrible shooting um, all in all, the entire amount of time that Charles Whitman was shooting from the tower was two hours. The majority of the injuries and deaths happened within the first 20 minutes before the citizens and the police sort of began their counterintelligence. Um, Mike Gabor um, was injured to the point where he could not go back to the Air Force, though I think after experiencing this, he probably didn't want to. He decided to take care of his mother, Mary, who was still alive, but she was paralyzed from the neck down. Um, and had also been blinded because she took a shotgun to the face. Uh, Mary considers herself lucky compared to her sister-in-law who died that day. Claire Wilson uh, horrifically didn't know what was happening. She didn't know that technically um, because of the trauma, she did give birth to a deceased child. Um, because of the damage of the bullet, she was rendered infertile. Um, she spent the rest of the fall semester learning to walk again. But she survived. Um, she was never told that she miscarried until she was already well healed. Um, she spent a lot of her time in the hospital alone and not watching any of the news and not wanting to know anything about anything that happened. Um, she became a seven-day Adventist at the Eaton Valley Institute, which was a nice place for her because there wasn't a lot of pop culture. And she didn't want to hear about the shooting. Um, no reminders of what happened. She worked with children at the commune eventually, leaving it traveling. 
Even as an older woman, she became a foster carer and she adopted a child from Ethiopia who is actually older than Charles Whitman Jr. was. David Gumby and the Littlefields were rescued by that armored car. All three were rushed to Breckenridge. And of course, all the local hospitals activated as soon as this started. Everyone in Austin turned out to help people. People immediately started donating blood at every local blood bank. The lines went around the corners. Massive donations of food and items for the community. They provided food and help and money to the families of the victims. Uh, like I said before, the saddest part for me was Paul Bolton um, learning that his grandson died on air. Yeah, That one just hits me hard. The toll of the day, though, was 32 wounded and 17 kills. This is one of the earliest and nation-defining public shootings. Uh, Austin closed the tower, and they repaired it. It took them two years. Um, the tower, actually, nothing really happened there until 1975 when four students committed suicide, and they closed it again to add security features so people couldn't jump. Um, it is open now, but it is by appointment only. Um, all visitors are screened via metal detector. Uh the thing is, there weren't really a lot of campus police at the time. There was sort of a public safety officer, but he wasn't a cop. After this, the school recognized that there was a need to have real police there. Um, and there was a nationwide outcry. 1967, Senator uh, Aiken proposed Senate Bill 162, which is an act providing for the protection, safety, and welfare of students and employees and for the policing of the buildings and grounds of the state institutions of higher education of this state, essentially saying we need to publicly pay so this doesn't happen again. Um, 1968, University of Texas System Police Academy graduated its first class of commissioned officers. And I want to make a point. These are not rent-a-cops. This is a completely separate but equally intense uh, group of local police who walk Austin's campus because it is the size of a small town. Um, and they do a host of training programs and things to work with threats on campus as well, as well as help with other tense situations. In 2006, a memorial garden was dedicated to those who died and were affected. There is a monument there that was added in 2016 on the 50th anniversary, and they actually stopped the clock on the tower for 24 hours starting at 11.48 a.m. Um, they also declared it uh, Ramiro Martinez Day. And they also added the names of all of the people who helped stop Charles Minton on a plaque at the Austin Police Precinct Building. In 2014, Claire Wilson's son received a tombstone um, at the Austin Memorial Park Cemetery. Up until that point, his grave had kind of been forgotten and a man by the name of Gary Laverne found it and thought that baby boy Wilson deserved a better, you know, commemoration. And so now it has a little crucifix and it says baby boy Wilson, August 1st, 1966. Um, Charles actually got his wish. They did take his brain and they did an autopsy. And, uh, well, I have to say this. He took a shot right in between his eyes. If you go to Google, you can absolutely see a photo of they took okay. a picture after they got him. Um, Charles Sr. gave them permission to do the autopsy, and they did find something. They found a tumor. Um, it was about the size of a walnut. And even if a tumor is benign, it does pull from other important parts of your brain. Um, when my sister had a benign tumor, um, she had like, she started like having neuropathy in her hands and dropping things. 
And she went to the doctor and they were like, oh, yeah, we got to take this out. Um, the other issue is that the tumor in Charles' brain was pushing up against the amygdala, which is the part of the brain that relates to your flight or fight response. And they wonder if Charles Whitman's violent outbursts were related to this. Um, I don't think it was fully it. Having a brain tumor does cause different behaviors, but this was planned real good. This was not just a brash decision like when he lashed out. I think maybe the, the blackouts when he got mad at Kathy, those could be connected to that. But he was well in his right mind. Um, of course, some people will blame this on his upbringing, psychological issues. And definitely he was anxious and depressed. And we don't know what else. But the thing is, only about 4% of violent crimes in the U.S. are committed by people who are mentally ill. And we have a lot of public shootings, so I don't think that that's the reason why. But I guess I'll leave that up to the listeners. Do you think it was because of his brain or what? That's a good one. I don't know. It is a lot. Yeah. But that's it for me. Let me stop. All right. Okay. Oh. Well, after that uh, somewhat emotionally exhausting uh, piece, what do you have for us today, Brian? Okay, today I have another cryptid. Hey! hey. <laughs> this one comes from Illinois. Um, Enfield, Illinois, actually. Um I've and, and the funny thing about this is I I got this cryptid out of the same book I got the <laughs> the Hoshwang out of. Hey, I listen. I think learning about like other cultures lore is super awesome. So you'll never hear okay, a complaint good. from me. Well, so this one is from the the cryptid dating uh comic uh, uh cryptid dating um coloring book I have. All right, so. Let me just let me just read this guy's profile for you, okay? This tagline says, "Tired of playing games." Like who isn't? Mood, buddy. All right. Name is Enfield the Magnificent. Turn ons Bradley Cooper's ankles. Okay. Turn offs are brittle spirits. Um, favorite movie is Tiger King. Yeah, Tiger King. Um, okay. Um, and in their bio, it says dating apps have been a bust. So I figured I'd try this. I'm looking for my equal, cunning as a fox, hungry like a wolf, an American as an eagle, wrapped in the flag, holding a shotgun in one claw and a ballot in the other. Yeah, I'm Irish, but I live in Texas. I'm very protective and. it's a jealous type so you need to be okay with that and this is the infield (laughs) the infield horror is what this cryptid's name actually is it's um if you look it up this location is infield illinois oh and this this picture they have it looks like a kind kind of like a slimy kangaroo lizard guy um but 
<laughs> let's I love I love the cryptic cryptid um coloring book because it's just like all the dating profiles are just hilarious in there. Um Okay. <laughs> so this takes a place back in nineteen in the nineteen seventies. Um I'd say nineteen seventy three is when um it first appeared to anybody. And there are a few encounters that have been reported, and I am going to read to you encounters of this creature. So, um, first one, this happens around 9.30 at night. Um, a man named Henry McDaniel and his wife, they are returning home, and, <clears throat> you know, they're returning home, and they get in the house, and they, you know, they they meet they they meet their kids at the door. The two kids, um, Lil Lil L I L, okay, and Henry, um, another Henry, um, so Henry Junior, I guess. The kids they they tell their parents about this thing that tried to get into the house while they were gone. It was scratching at it was scratching at the door, and mm. and you know the parents are just like, "Oh, you you children, you don't know what you're talking about. There's nothing going on. It was probably just like a dog or a cat trying to get in, like a random. They saw the lights on, and like a random animal was just trying to get in. That's all it was. Um, but afterwards, Henry, Big Henry. He he starts hearing scratching at the door like a little later on that night, <clears throat> and he was like, he's just thinking to himself, "Oh, it's probably just a dog, or you know, maybe a raccoon or something." So he goes to the door, you know, like to you know check it out, and um, it's not a dog or a raccoon that he sees at his door. Okay, what he sees is. A creature, and this is how he describes it, it had three legs on it, it had a short body, it had two little short arms, and two pink eyes as big as flashlights, and it stood on, it stood about four and a half feet tall, and, and, right. <laughs> and I guess the skin was just gray, grayish skin. And it was trying to get in my house, is what he says. Ooh. So Henry just basically like pissed his pants at the door. He didn't do it. I'm I'm just exaggerating, but he was really really scared. As he opened the door, he saw this thing, and he's like, "Oh, oh no!" <laughs> and he slams the door in his face. He grabs his his twenty two and a flashlight. And he just starts shooting, you know, at this creature because, you know, once, you know, it's something you don't know what it is. You're going to start shooting at it. That's what we do. Right. Yes. So okay. he he shoots. He, he says when you fire the first shot, he knew he hit it um, and because the beast hissed at him. Um, yeah. Ooh. And he said it sounded like a wildcat hiss. Um, and 
after after that first shot that hit him, it just like ran away. It it bounded away in long leaps across the yard. So the picture of the kangaroo-looking thing is not too far off, because um, I'm thinking it, it might be okay. some type of like escaped kangaroo. <laughs> Imagine escaped kangaroo just knocking on your door. <laughs> no, it's. It... Why is it trying to? I don't know. But eventually, he he lost sight of it, and it made his way towards like the the railroad. So. Mm-hmm. And derailed a train. You never know. Um, he said, Henry says that he's, he, like, he's seen the thing, like, go, what was it, like, it covered 50 feet in three leaps. Three little leaps, nice. yes. And. I've never heard about, like, a kangaroo <laughs> type this is I'm not weird. sure if it's a kangaroo, but that's what the picture looks like. It has big kangaroo feet. Um, kangaroo mm-hmm. energy. So after you know this happened, of course Henry calls the police. There's a crazy looking crypt, a crazy looking animal at my door, and I shot it a few times, and it ran away. Um, the police come, or the state troopers, I guess. Um, they come, they investigate, they find. That there's a series of scratches on the siding of the house, and fo- yep, nice. And that there were footprints that were similar to a dog's footprints, but they had six toes instead of four. And okay, yeah. Uh, and two of the tracks were four inches wide, while I guess. The print left by the third foot was smaller, so it was like he has a. a I don't. I don't know if it's a. A third yeah, leg. A yeah, third yeah, foot. Yeah, third leg. He has, yeah, he has three, three, three legs. Three legs. Two arms. Weird. <laughs> it's I don't a tripod like it. kangaroo monster. I don't, I don't like it. Oh, uh, so he has a, one smaller foot, but two other big feet. Um. Of course, every. That's so cute that you said feats. <laughs> that was adorable. So many, many, like a lot of everybody on the police force, they're like, okay, so were you drinking? What's going on here? Yeah, but if, even if he was drinking, how would he like have this created is, that? He only has four limbs. And, and it's funny because even though like the police were skeptical, they're was an attack on a small boy just 30 minutes before Henry calls. See, there so, we go. And this report was that this creature had ripped at the, at the kid's clothes with claws on his arms while the talons on the toes had shredded the kid's shoes. And Dang. nobody... And not nobody, no police could find like any trace of this guy, uh, this creature. So, um, you know, things months, yeah. After this, like things like basically just fell off until May six at three a.m. Henry, Henry's back again. He, Mm -hmm. the creature comes back. 
He said he's in, he he, he no. encounters this creature again. Oh, <laughs> it, it, this like it's three a.m. in the morning, so he's 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 fast asleep, and he hears a commotion from his neighbors, and it's his neighbor's dogs going off, and oh, they're gonna get <laughs> murdered. Uh, so he saw the. He, <laughs> Always happens in your story. Krypton's like eating animals. I don't know what you want me to do. <laughs> they, they like do. eating dogs. There's so many other animals you could eat. Cows <laughs> could provide so much. Okay, but more dogs protein. are noisiest, and like, if if I want to get rid of something that's like alerting people to my presence, I'm gonna go after that damn dog. <laughs> so the correct answer is grab it and take it into <laughs> <Yes>. the sky. <laughs> You'll never see it again anyway. So he, Henry sees a creature. He's looking at, I guess he's looking out his door and he sees a creature like at the, mm-hmm. at the train tracks where the, where the railroad was at again. And it's just like loitering, like walking around, just like, I'm doing creepy cryptid stuff. Um, and it's there for a few minutes <laughs> until it like just disappeared into the night. Um, Mm. yeah yeah that's um, cool henry's quoted by as saying um i saw something moving out on the train on the railroad track and there it stood i didn't shoot at it or anything it started on down a railroad track it wasn't in a hurry or nothing it was just going on its merry little way um mm-hmm. then this is when they i guess they coined it the the infield horror um, because I guess there's something horrible, it's, it's creepy, infilled Illinois <laughs> thing going on. Um, <clears throat> good enough to any other one. Uh, yeah, um, God, where am I at? Where am I at? Where am I at? Where am I at? Sorry. Um, so, of course. The, nobody wanted to see it around, right? So the local sheriff, um, his name was Roy Poshard Jr. Um, okay. He goes to Henry and he's like, "Look, keep your mouth shut around that about about this stuff, Ooh. okay? Keep, keep just like we don't want this stuff getting around. Like there's some type of big old monster going like hopping around on the railroad tracks. So like if if you don't, it's yeah, it's like if you don't keep your mouth shut." I will have to arrest you. Um, For telling your business? That's not how that works, officer. <laughs> I'm like, sorry, dude. That's not no, how that no, works. No, 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 that's not. <laughs> oh, my God. I can gossip if I want to. You're causing, what's that What's that word? You're causing, like, a, you're a panic in the community. I yeah. mean, they might say so that. that. That's that's probably why they would arrest him. Like Chicken Little, you're being like Chicken Little. Like they eventually, you'll get you have to get arrested, buddy. I'm sorry. Um, Listen, I didn't say the sky was falling. I said that a thing <laughs> might attack you, like it did that little boy. Uh, true, true, true. Um, See, you should you should know about that. But over the next, I guess, few months, there were just crowds of people that came. And just came, just, just like came to like check out this this infield horror. Um, 
The, there oh, were uh-huh. monster hunters, and of course, of and, course, you know, cryptid researchers, and you know stuff like that. Because <clears throat> we're not smart. <laughs> And you know, just people or just people with guns that just wanted to see if they can like just they were just there with guns. Um We've discovered it. Basically, now can we kill it? The American uh, way. Uh, God. <laughs> so the sheriff is like, all right, you know what? Fuck this shit. Um <laughs> He had to. He had to. He he arrested like five people that were like the the monster hunting hunters who were who had guns, and because they were shooting at whatever gray thing they saw that ran into the woods. Right, that's yeah. dangerous. Yeah. Um, let's see. Two of those hunters, their names were Mike Mogul and Roger Tappy, and they both lived in Indiana. Um. Which was not Indiana. We were just talking about Indiana. So, yeah, we were. Um, Indiana is close to Illinois, so yeah, I guess yeah, yeah. They just they didn't drive too far. Yeah. Um And like like I said, two of these, the two guys that two of the three or was it, how many did I say five? <laughs> two of the five guys he arrested said that they saw a gray looking monkey. That moved quickly through the underbrush, so they shot at it. And the sheriff, like the sheriff, goes back to Henry, and he's like, "Yo, Henry, this is your fault. You know this, right? Like, I, I will arrest you. Like, keep your mouth shut. Like, stop telling people about this damn gray thing that you saw, that you think you saw at the railroad." Um. Yeah, I, I mean, of course, like, of course, they knew something like weird was going on, but like, <laughs> why would I lie? <laughs> we don't want all these random ass hunters coming here shooting up the woods. Well, listen, nobody told them to do that. Make it a only community. <laughs> only the community people can shoot up the woods. <laughs> oh God! Yeah. Or or embrace it like West Virginia did. Build a statue of it with a thick <laughs> booty and I call mean, it a tourist trap. I mean, yes, <laughs> do that. Uh, but sooner or later, um, as the <laughs> capitalism. <laughs> oh goodness gracious! Soon... No, don't do that. Capitalism is bad, y'all. It it's really is. The um, but sooner or later, the, the 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 crowd of hunters and the tourists they all seem to die down for the moment, um, mm-hmm. and that's the that, yeah that's basically that's like the end of Henry's part of this. Um, but okay. there's another person who saw this other horror, and his nick was it not so uh-huh. good. <laughs> so Aww. his name was Rick Rainbow. Yeah, I know, really right? Cool name, right? Like, yeah, I'd like a name like that, Rick Rainbow, like Brian. Yeah, you don't like Brian, Brian Joyner? I'd like my last name to have the same letter as my first name, Brian. I don't know. I'm I'm pretty chill that like I've settled into a career that my last yeah. name makes sense. <laughs> it's kind of cool, actually. Oh, uh, so on a Sunday, May six, um, Rick. 
He's a director at the radio station WWKI in Kokomo, Indiana. Um, was searching, he was searching around the area with three of his friends when they saw something that was like around five and a half feet. So maybe this thing grew a foot. Um, it, yeah. That's frightening. It was gray and um, it stooped over, running through the woods near, I guess, an abandoned house. Um, um, and <laughs> it's funny because where this abandoned house was, it was near Henry McDaniel's house. <laughs> so Henry's not really out of the story. Oh, oh, like all like that. Um, okay. And they said that this. I really want to see a picture <laughs> of this creature because this is. I, my brain is all over the place with what this thing could I'll look send like. You some. Um, so I got to remember that. Like when I'm doing cryptids, I got to save pictures so I can send to you. <laughs> it's just usually I have like a like a better idea but like it's too many yeah like the descriptions of this thing it's um it's um i don't know how to explain it uh hold on everybody's describing it differently as they see it i'm hearing monkey i'm hearing (laughs) kangaroo i i don't get it oh hold on let me (laughs) let me let me let me get this for you real quick hold on a sec is this in and Fallout? It's game? not. Which, actually, oh boo. No, I don't think it is. No, 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 no. Isn't that where all the other ones uh, no. are? I'm going to start that game soon. So that's I can that's see Fallout seventy six. No. Oh, okay. That's yeah. 70, yeah seventy six is the one in West Virginia where all you get all the West Virginia cryptids, which is. Okay, there's some really cool artist renderings of this. Oh yeah, I was about to send it to you. <laughs> um, but I'm trying to figure out what the I'm trying to find the original picture. That one is um. So the original, you know, like the first one that somebody drew. I always love seeing those. So I think that the, the whatever sketch they took of whatever this creature was is <clears throat> is this not the one I just sent, but this one I'm sending right now. That's that's what it supposedly looks like. This has got to be an alien, y'all. Nothing has only three legs. Nothing. They're all even numbers. Two, four, six, eight. Yeah. Um. Let me finish this up. Okay. Um. So they said that this thing moved with unnatural speed and very quickly vanished from the four men's sight. Um, Rick claims that he recorded the creature's eerie shriek as it ran away from them on tape, on a tape recorder. Um, and But despite an investigation by world-renowned cryptozoologist Lauren Coleman, um, who said that she also heard the creature's screams or shrieks and whatever. Um, mm-hmm. The attention that the sightings received 
eventually die down, of course. And the creature hasn't been seen since. Um, and Lauren goes to tell people that I traveled to Enfield. I interviewed the witnesses, looked at the sighting of the house of the Enfield monster that mm-hmm. the Enfield monster had damaged, heard some strange screeching banshee-like sounds, and walked away bewildered. So that's that's um yeah that's a that's a thing um <clears throat> so some people have said that this infield horror may be something that was called the Mount Vernon creature and wait do I have my date right hold on a sec when did I say 70s yes okay so between the years of 1941 and 1942, <clears throat> there were this is a very like is a string of very similar sightings in the village of Mount Vernon, um, which is about 40 minutes away from Enfield, <clears throat> and these encounters involved a mysterious leaping creature. That terrorized the local people, and and it is responsible for numerous animal deaths. Hold on a sec. Hold on a sec. Can we pause? Okay. Um. Sorry about that. Or sorry about this. But um, I had a little bit of a medical emergency, so I had to cut out. It's fine. Our last session. Um. So it's just me right now recording the last bit of my segment for anybody else who is wondering why Brittany is not here. It's because I, I had to record this separately by myself. <laughs> Busy. It's fine. Go, go, go. Anyway, um, just the, the last little part of, of this um, infield horror or infield monster, as you call it, um, is that between the years of 1941 and 1942, in the village of Mount Vernon, um, which is about like 40 minutes away from Enfield, um, there was a similar like string of incidents to the one in Enfield, which involved a creature that was leaping and leaping around terrorizing the local <laughs> the locals and like it was responsible like it, it's it's um alleged allegedly responsible for numerous animal deaths in that region um and this this beast was basically called um the, the mountain vernon monster and it's said it's it's said to have been like a baboon type like a type of thing. I know it was able to leap you know, twenty to forty feet in like a single bound, which is you know, you know it's pretty 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 um weird. I guess is like I mean since Mount Vernon wasn't that far away from Enfield, it could be like this. This it could be the same creature. And people were just wondering, so is this just like a, a like an off, like, a, what's, um, um, what's, what's the word for that? <laughs> it's a different, 
<laughs> not different species, just like a like an um a descendant from this uh, Mount Vernon monster. Is is this infield horror supposed to be like some type of uh, descendant of this? Um, there have not been any sightings of the infield horror or this Mount Vernon monster uh, in the 21st century. Um, so maybe it died off or maybe it's just in hibernation waiting for like the next, you know, it's, it's like a cicada. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like the next 17 years they're underground, but once they come up, you know, they're out. Um, so maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's just like one of those, uh, it lies dormant until it's ready to strike again. Um, but yeah, it's only it's it's been about forty years since anybody has re- recorded about it. So it, like I said, it may still be lurking out there, and it may not be. Um, anyway, that is all I have for today. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening to the podcast. And I am once again sorry I had a, um, a medical emergency that I had to deal with, so I had to cut out on my last part. So. Um, you know where to find us, all of our, well, all of Brittany's socials, you can find her on TikTok. You can go to our website. Um, we still have merch at winkillersgetcaught.shop. Um, and you can always find me, well, most of the time, you can find always find me in our Discord. And you can always find me on Twitch as well. I'll probably be streaming something sometime soon. But, all right, thank you for listening, and have a great weekend.